You're listening to Earnestly Speaking, the only weekly podcast that covers friends, foes, and anything that goes. And now, for your badass host, Ernest Owens. And we're back for another episode of Earnestly Speaking with your host, Ernest Owens, myself. <laughs> well, 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 this has been quite the week. I mean... I, I don't even know where to start. Like, what what's what's going on, Philly? What's going on, America? What's going on, the world? Oh, my goodness. I, you know, you, you think you know, right? And then things just go in a very interesting direction. So, you know, it's. I'm in the I'm in the press, you know, the blogs are talking, the streets are talking, there's just so much going on. Um and <laughs> I can't wait to dive into a lot of it. I I, I definitely, you know, uh, was like, how do I I just I just, you know what they say, Clarissa explains it all. Ernest explains it all, you know. I know a lot of you all were messaging me um over the weekend, just texting me like you know, I need to. I, I need this podcast to drop. You you gonna give us a special edition, and you gonna listen? I said no. I'm gonna I'm gonna put it all on one episode and explain it all because you know I have been dropping a lot of surprises and this stuff is coming out. Y'all like wait 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 whoa 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 whoa. It's just so much, and so I gotta love the podcast because in a way, one I can talk about the news and what's going on in the world and how I feel about it, but also I can explain a lot of the things that come out for me because I guess I'm someone of a public note. So I want to talk about just because the things that I do want to talk about, I feel like they're news. So I'm going to put them in the, you know, the hot topic section, but I want to talk about just, you know, some places I've been to before, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll start, we'll start there. Um, so I went to Sin this weekend, uh, not this weekend, this week. I got a sneak peek at Sin, which is Steak Italian Nightlife, which is in Northern Liberties. This is brand new nightlife, restaurant, all this jazz. They stay open till like 1 a.m., which is a big deal for the Fishtown or the Liberties area. Um, the restaurant has become a little controversial because people are like, you know, what in, what in the hell is this fancy restaurant doing in Northern Liberties? Because Northern Liberties typically have, you know, burgers and nachos and tacos, but they don't really do like a a fine dining type of situation. I mean, there are some restaurants, I suppose, but I really can't think of the last like really fine dining restaurant I've went to in Northern Liberties. Every time I go to Northern Liberties, I think of like Anejo, I think of, you know, Set No Libs, you know, like the bagel shop. (laughs) Um... But you know those are not bad places. Those are those are pretty good places actually. They're fun to eat. You know, I don't I don't have any complaints there. But like I haven't I don't recall like sitting at a restaurant like sitting down and, and you know the, the 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 vests and the servers and you know thirty different wine options that I don't recall in Northern Liberties um, in my experience there. And so it was very unique. I went. I did an exclusive sneak peek. I tried some of the menu. I spoke with the owner. Um, who's a 30-year-old guy. He's a developer. His name is Justin. And I think it's Varsity or Varney or whatever. But, like, his name is Justin. He's 30. Um, and, you know, he, you know, it's been interesting. His interview with me has gotten a lot of different, uh, has gotten a lot of attention. People are just kind of like, 
you know, having mixed thoughts. They're like, you know, he's he talked about how he's traveled around the country. He's been to like Miami, New York, LA, Vegas. I mean, he's been traveling, right? And he was just saying like how, you know, he was very hype about how he doesn't feel like there's a restaurant that meets the energy of those cities. Debatable by some, debatable by many. But he says, look, I'm bringing something to, you know, Philly that has not been here before. And he called it vibe dining, which became its own conversation. People are like, what is vibe dining? What is that? You know, but <laughs> uh, but the way he puts it, and I, and I thought this was interesting. Um, the restaurant is pretty. I think the restaurant looks good. It's a good looking restaurant. Um, we'll talk about the food in a second, but the restaurant itself is gorgeous. It's a very nice looking restaurant. They got a private room. Look, I saw myself in it personally. I saw myself in the restaurant. Like, I felt like I saw myself, you know, there. Um, you know, but, you know, without you know being a reporter covering it, but like. I, 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 it's a place that I definitely would go. It's a place that I, I believe my friends would go. You know, of course, I went with one of my lit brothers, Josh. Josh, he's Philly. We we both, you know, tag team and went just to check it out. And, you know, it was a, it was a vibe, right? So what do you mean by vibe dining is that he he says that, you know, there that the, the restaurant is not a nightclub, right? But it has a nightclub ambiance in the sense that, you know, there's going to be some, so there could be elements of live music. There's always going to be a nice, vibe and flow right but no one's dancing it's not a huge party but people are sitting and eating their dinner but it's this cool you know it's this cool intimacy that's there but also this funness that's there across like you really want to walk in a room and it's a vibe i guess you know that's the that's the energy and and i mean looking at the place it is that atmosphere like you this is a place you want to go to be seen um this is a place that you know you know, fly folks are gonna be there. Like the the people he have serving the bottles, the, the bottle girls. They 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 look like models. You know, um, it's it's a certain type of energy, and I think it's interesting to see how it goes. Right, stuff like this, or I consider, you know, experiments. Right, this could be a big deal that could easily. It's it's in this interesting position where it can set the trend for the next you know dozen of restaurants that come in the next couple of years. Right. If it's super successful or it could be an epic flop and a lot of people might be like, this is not for Philly. Send that shit back to New York and it could go left. Right. But it's interesting. I, I'm, I'm fascinated with restaurants that have concepts or take risks. We need more of that. You know, there's a lot of people that play it safe. There's elements of this restaurant that it is, it is a risk. Right. And it's interesting on a, on, as a journalist, as someone who covers restaurants, and food and all of that. It is, it's always fun to see something, you know, like that. You don't know, right? Those are the fun stories. It, it, covering stuff, I mean, I'm not throwing shade to any restaurants, but th there are places, there are some places that, you know, when they come, you know, it's gonna be good. It, it checks off all the things off the book. There's no real stories. It's kind of like, oh, we want to make good food. Yeah, food's good, it's fun, whatever, cute pictures. But there's never anything more than that, right? This is different. This is having everything about this restaurant is just it's it's um and I'm again I'm not saying this as as like I'm rating everything. I'm just saying that the whole rollout has been iconic. I haven't seen folks go up in arms about a restaurant with all of this since I don't want I want to say steak 48. 
I can't remember the last time there was like a restaurant that had this type of energy, the attention to it. Like there have been great openings, right? Like High Street's Return, which we'll talk about that later on the, in the podcast. But there's other restaurants that have come in a great, like Pod Return, you know, it's fine. It was great. No shade, right? But the, but the whole, everything about this place and the energy is getting, I would say the last time was, was Jim's West, but that wasn't a restaurant. It was like a cheesesteak situation. But I just can't think of anything that's been like this in a long time. And so it's, it's fun. It's fun to watch. It's fun to cover. And I'm telling y'all, I think everyone should go. I think everyone should try it. Grown, sexy. I, like, I, I, I dig it. I ain't gonna hold you. I dig it. I get what he's trying to do. I don't know if it's like a millennial thing and parents just don't understand. I don't know. I just feel like I dig it. I get what he's trying to do. And I ain't gonna hold you. Like I have been, I'm at, I'm, I'm, look, I'm 32, but I'm a married 32, right? And that 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 matters. A married 32 is different from a single 32. And there's no judgment on 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 status or anything. I'm not saying I'm saying that. I don't, I've realized I, I can't stay out too late. I just, I'm just not crazy about staying out too late. Unless I am, you know, in my zone. Like if I'm out at a private club, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm just like, I don't look, I don't know. Maybe I'm a little, maybe I'm a little pampered. I don't know. But I'm in my mind like, oh, everybody, like, we could go out for drinks. I gotta, I'm, I'm married to a man who has a bartending company. Like I don't, I don't have to go to, to the bar super, super late. Um, also maybe it's because of the fact that when I do go out, it's, it's, it's a lot of, you know, it's never, I mean, sometimes like, okay, so I'll give you an example. So a week ago during the gala, which was fabulous, of course, and the pictures are out. I'm in love with them all. Shots of Quran. He's, 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 he's my celebrity photographer. He's my guy. Like if I need somebody to come through and pull up, he's just come on Riles. You know, you know, he he he's the man. He's the man. Listen, his photos are everything. He hires events. If you didn't see the photos, you can see the photos. I tagged his Instagram is DVS Company at DVS underscore co co, and they do videography. They do photography. They do it all, and it's an incredible company. They're the Creative Coalition, culture curated. They're a creative agency. They got a nice following on Instagram. You should check out their website and hire them. They work with everybody, all backgrounds, all types of situations. Uh, check out their Instagram. It is DVS underscore co co. And Karan Riles is the leader over there. And he, oh my goodness, he do great photos of me, man. My photos, look, my family photos, like some of his stuff is so good. I'm going to probably like frame it and like you know, give out gifts. I'm trying to figure out what my gifts are going to be for next year for my friends. I have a theme, but that's another story. Anyway, so I had an after party at a hotel lobby at the Westin um, downtown. It was like a little after party and it was a charcuterie board. Mr. Johnson made, uh, you know, cocktails and it was a small intimate party with friends um, right after the gala. And it was mostly the my board and our committee leaders. It, it wasn't like a everybody and mother need to come. It was it was like about maybe 15, 10 people. So we were there and I mean the party was started around, I want to say eleven thirty PM. We finally all got and we finally all arrived at the at the um suite around then. Everybody was you know mixing and mingling, talking, all that. Within an hour, a couple of folks were like, oh, you know, we got this invite to go to the club. 
And there was some party at this spot called the Winston. And so I was like, okay, well, y'all have fun. They were like, wait, you're not going? I'm like, um, excuse me, uh, what time is it? <laughs> I don't know, but I just, I just, I mean, the crazy part was they ended up getting a, a section, a booth, bottle service. It was, it, they had a good time, but I just like, I can't with all the noise. I can't with all the, you know, and then folks want to come up to you. He's like, oh, it's, I'm not, in the, I, you know, you, you just know yourself. So, yeah, I just, I, I'm like, I'm the, okay, we'll do this part, but I'm not going to be a part of the third leg of the night. Like, I'm the person who stops at the, okay, I'll do the follow-up, but I'm not going to do the follow-up to the follow-up. I'm the person that stops at, you know, that next part. So let's say if there's a birthday party, everybody go to someone's house to sip and do drinks. My night stops at that part of the fun, right? I'm not going to be the person that goes to the next spot. The last was like, mm -mm, that's just too much for me. But I think part of it is because I go out a lot anyway that I just don't. Because I'm like, what? I don't know how to put it. I'm like, what What do I, what am I, what, what do I do next? Why, why do I need to do the next part? I mean, we could spend time. I mean, let's do brunch. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I just don't need too many. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give y'all an after party, but I can't do the after after party. I've just, I've realized that is my, I found my limit. Because at that point, I get a little irritable. Or I just get like. I just be like, I just be at that point, just I'm what's my energy, my social energy, uh <laughs> my social battery is 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 runs empty at that point. I don't know. But I just I'm I'm typically not. Now sometimes I might do more, but it's just like I don't know. Philly, I think Philly's nightlife is just not there's there's elements of it that's just not fulfilling, right? And we got a nightmare, Raheem Manning, who don't answer my homegirl's DMs when she be want to get information about clubs that are playing games with their times. But, you know, we're going to let the nightmare ride out. He better hope that Sherelle Parker reappoint him in the position. And he better make sure he gets it together, responding to the needs of the public when it comes to these issues. See, sometimes you got to put an at on it. You got to put a name on it. But he's, he's cool. He's a nice guy. But anyway, so, <laughs> so I... um. So with sin, I just, I think what it's giving is that it's not nightclub, but it has the vibe of a nightclub energy. You know, the music, the high energy, the lovely bottle service, the, the, the you know, all of those things. But you're having a dinner and you're able to be socialized and have fun with friends. But you have to have all of the chaos that comes with nightclub, nightclub life. So vibe dining is that. It's the element of you feel like you're in a club. It's a groove, it's a, it's, a, it's a pace, but you don't have all of the, the, the chaos of a nightclub. For folks like me who've gone to nightclubs, that was my 20s, you see a lot of interesting characters and, and people. So I do like the fact that I can be able to go out somewhere and not feel overwhelmed um, and, and all of that. So I, I do appreciate it. Now, the food. The food is is classic. It's 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 classic American Italian cuisine. You know, you got your chicken parm, you got your good steaks, you got your ribeyes, all that. You you know, you have your um, chicken marsala. The chef that is over the place, um, the leader of, of it, he used to be at a lot of Stephen. No, no, he did Garza Jose Garza's restaurants. He did a Mata in Atlantic City. He's at a couple of places for um, as executive chef over for some Garza's restaurants. And he also did for a small stint, a Steven Star restaurant or a project before Steven Star pulled out, um, Bankroll. He was the executive chef of Bankroll before that that fell apart. Um, and so the chef 
executive chef, he just wants to do things up a notch. And so I got to see the kitchen ascend and check out the food and check out all the vibes. And, you know, look, the food, the food is good. Like, I don't, I don't, I mean, the food is standard. It's it's nothing on that front that's like elevated and high, fine cuisine. It's good. It's just solid good, if that makes sense. Like, you know, there's some restaurants that's like, hey, it's mind-blowing. There's some things going on that that they're doing with recipes that you have never tried flavor before. It's very familiar. It's very comforting food. It's, 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 it's again, it's just standard good food. Like, you, I think that's the one thing I'll say. A, a restaurant like that can have food that's ridiculously overpriced. The food prices, I believe, are fair. I don't think it's overpriced at all. Um, I think the food is, is is very just standard, very standardly good. Like it's decent food. It's nothing, you know, oh my God, this is the most incredible steak I've ever had in my life. No, that it's not that, but it's not a bad steak at all either. It's not like, a, oh, I don't like this. This was mediocre. No mediocrity here, just standard. You know, I, I would definitely give it a 7.5, eight, eight out of 10, an eight out of 10, if that makes sense. And that's not bad, right? You know, so I, but also it's Italian and I, because maybe I've had so Philadelphia just makes Italian food super well. It, a lot of the places just by nature isn't going to be, you know, because of the type of cuisine. But I've also have learned that just because something doesn't taste like vetri doesn't mean it's it's bad like we do that too much in society i feel like like i mean like music is like if, if if every everybody can't sing like beyonce every r&b artist coming out the gate cannot dance or sing like beyonce and respect beyonce because she's been in the game for 25 years so to act like anyone can do what she do instantly is unfair to her and it's unfair to the other artists i just want to make that that point because we do that in the food industry we do that in hollywood we do that in music we just always put these high expectations on, on folks specifically folks that are new or young or whatever so no it's not mark vetri but that's okay because that's not even what i think it's trying to achieve it's first of all it's italian it's american italian food so you're thinking of like the things you know at olive garden the menu item at olive garden except actually with better ingredients a higher quality chef and a better presentation and consistency. But let's not sleep on the tour of Italy at, at Olive Garden. Let me just say that. We're not going to sleep on the tour of Italy. Because y'all will joke about tour of Italy. Let me say the tour of Italy, baby. Okay, with a good breadstick and a salad. Well, let me tell you something. That Olive Garden salad dressing is unmatched and unrivaled. It's so good that they had to package it. They made their own and sold it in grocery stores because it was something about that dressing that had the people going, listen, I was one of those people, okay? Listen, sometimes that's what it took. You, I used to go on a date. Oh, I remember the days of, of my Olive Garden years. This was when I was in Houston, when I was what they would call a young buck. And um, I was out there. And I used to go on dates, but I remember I remember a date I had at Olive Garden. Ooh, goodness gracious. What a date. I broke that man in half. <laughs> not not in that way. And, and so we go out. I, I was like, when I was when I was young, I was super skinny. I don't know if I ever throw I don't do enough throwback Thursday folks, but back in the day, like like 13, 14 years ago, I was super, super skinny. Like super, super skinny. And you know. Lately, I've been slimming down, which has been interesting to watch. The girl is slimming, but I'm doing it at my own pace. I'm Oprah. I look good in every size that I'm in. But anywho, I 
I, I, I remember years ago, like I said, I was super, super, super skinny. It was ridiculous. This was like years ago, over a decade ago. And I went out and I guess this guy, he took me out and we was at Olive Garden. And so this was like 2009. It was like, it was like 2009 when I went on this date. So that's that. I was like, I had just turned 18 because I turned 18. My birthday was October 12th, right? So... I'm trying to remember what it was. Like, right before the... Like, it was right... Okay, it was right during winter break. And this is my senior year. And I was like, definitely have a senioritis. But I pushed through. This is taking me somewhere. So, we were on Highway 6. There was an Olive Garden on Highway 6, for those who know Houston. West Oaks Mall. And Darden restaurants were up and down there. So, it was a Joe's Crab Shack not too far away. There was that Red Lobster. And this was when you remember when Red Lobster and Olive Garden used to always be next to each other. Okay, throwback. Okay. So, I went there because at the time olive garden was my favorite restaurant we've come a long way chili's was second place i did my 18th birthday dinner at chili's and you know who was there jamarcus henderson my lit brother my best friend of so many years okay we've been friends for over 15 years that's my bestie we went from we go so back and i just we talk about it so much about how we both have grown up and do things now we live across the street from each other like it's it's my girl so we was okay so so this date at olive garden um we go and i mean he you know he decided to pay of course and i was 18 yeah i was definitely 18. he was a freshman at university of houston because he didn't go to Rice. Yes, he did not go to Rice. Because I got accepted to Rice. And he was, you know, like, oh, check you out, Mr. Mister So-and-so. But he was at University of Houston, downtown. He did not stay on main campus. That I remember. Because he had an apartment. But that's another story for another day. So we were there. And we were eating. And I don't know what it was. But, like, he, I'm eating the salad. You know, I got more salad than I can imagine. I was, listen, listen, I'm tall. I think people look at it, look, I used to be called the bombless pit because I used to eat so much, but I used to never, like, really, like, gain weight. And so, I don't know what he thought, but I guess when it was time for entrees, he's like, whatever, you know, get what you want, what you're interested in. And I said, I went to tour Italy, and he looked at that menu, this is how you know this is back in the olden days, okay? Because, like, <laughs> come on. Um, but he looks at that menu, he's like, oh. And then... <laughs> So she asked him what he, so I got the tour of Italy and then he was like, oh, I'm good. I'm, good. I'm just going to just do salad and breadsticks. You know, I'm, I'm chilling. I'm good. He got, he was good. So it made me feel weird because I was like, wow, like, you're not hungry? He's like, oh, you're not full. You know, all this soup, salad and breadsticks. I was like, oh, okay. I mean, in retrospect, I understand what the context of what was happening. But, you know, why are you going to take out a kid? Listen, I didn't, under, listen, I had no conception of what was happening at the time. So the funny part was that when the food comes, he's like, damn, you going to eat all that? I'm like, uh, yeah, what's up? So he starts, so I could tell that he was hungry. Like, I could tell that the salad and breadsticks was not hitting for him. So I said, let me just, I said, you want some of this uh, chicken parm? I'm not going to eat all the chicken parm. I want to eat all the chicken parm. But I just was like, let me get him some of this chicken parm. So he, listen, he tore that shit up. Okay, so we both ate it together. It was cute. Um... That's what Olive Garden was at being tools. Because 
there was this thing culture wise where if you got the soup, salad, and breadsticks, it had to be two people. Don't ask me how I know this. But they <laughs> but you couldn't share meals. You had to do you had to do two entrees. Both people had to eat at the table. And I didn't, you know, maybe I was responsible partially for as I was one of those diners that went to these restaurants that would, you know, do it like that. Be like, oh, you know. You got to have, you know, you can't do, you got to have two entrees in order to get the soup, salad, and breadsticks. You just can't go there and do it. Now, now they do that. I think they allow people to do unlimited now with anything or whatever. But back then, it was very like, oh, no, that's complimentary, and you need to get you an entree, too. But we shared. It was cute. It was definitely not a Bella Noche, like Lady and Tramp situation, but it was it was cute. I have to I, I commend him on his... Uh, yeah, I'm gonna commend him on his uh, his his thoughtfulness. He was a gentleman. I mean, a gentleman. You know, look, he did. He listen. Maybe his he, the ta- he had a budget, and maybe I went over the budget without knowing. But you can't tell me get whatever I want. I mean, I didn't know. But anywho, I mean, I'm gonna be classy. But but all I gotta say is it was a nice night for everybody involved. So that was then. This is now. That being said. Um, I don't even know where I went with that. Okay, Olive Garden is 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 decent. I miss Olive Garden, Philly. The irony is, is that a year, a year, no, 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 years later, what what year was it? Twenty? Oh my God, it was like twenty fourteen. So that had to be five years later. One of my first dates with now the man who's my husband was at Olive Garden. Invisible String. If you heard this song by Taylor Swift off her album Folklore, it's a song called Invisible String. And I really feel like that describes my relationship with um, Mr. Johnson, my marriage, because it's just like, there's all these weird parallels and connections. But listen to that song. If you don't listen to a Taylor Swift song, one of my favorite songs by her, which I feel like is underrated, and they don't they don't talk about enough, is Invisible String. But I mean, she... it. So the song is about her and the guy I thought she was going to marry. Um... What's his name? Joe. Joe, um, he's an actor. Um, and, you know, he's a British actor. But I thought they were going to be the couple together. I don't think this this, this Travis Kelce thing is a thing. I, I still don't believe it. I know the Chiefs and the Eagles, all the drama with all that. Look at that game. The brothers on brothers, the family. The, it's, it, it's crazy. I just don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I'm not convinced. I'm not convinced. I think this is a moment... And I feel like all the tension, I'm like a little annoyed with her because I was well, I was rooting for her. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Swifty, but I'm just kind of like, girl, these are those moments where I can like, where people be like, okay, Taylor Swift's annoying. This be the shit. It's not the music. The music is 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 hitting. I like her pop music. I'm, I love her music. I don't, I don't, I ain't got no problem with the music. I think it's the other things that happen, like all these relationships and some people she's dated. I'm like, oh, why do we got it? Why is this the distraction? You got all this good stuff going on. You 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 might win your fourth Grammy for album of the year and make history again. Like, come on, you know. So it's it's you know yeah. But anywho, um, Invisible String was the song that she sings and she's connecting the dots between how all these coincidences led to her being with at the time Joe. Um, and her ex now, but how they, that was a connection there. And I just think that there's all these little hints in my life that pointed me in the direction of being with him. Like there were things, there were like all these unique coincidences in our experience that 
it, it's almost like everything pointed us to be together. There were like all these subtle signs. Like one of them, which I, I don't, you know, this podcast is going in different directions. But that's why I love it because it's like kind of free-flowing, right? You know, it's like, okay, I wasn't thinking this was going to be how we was going to start the show, but here we are. But one of these things is that every person I had a serious relationship, their birthday was on, like, the, 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 the major exes I had. There's some people that I don't consider major exes, but the first person I, guy I dated, like, fell in love with, I would argue, his birthday was the day before... My husband's. That that was interesting. Another interesting thing is is that I went to a psychic, like when I was in college. I w- I walked down with a psychic. Uh, there was one on the street. I forget it's in Chestnut. She's on Chestnut Street. But me and my friends went in the summer of twenty. Was it 2013? Like, yeah, 10 years ago. And it's before I met him. And I was so single, y'all. I was so, oh, I was boy crazy. But anyway, I was I went to the psychic and I was like, I'm looking, I want to know, like, what do you want to talk about? Your health? You this? I was like, oh, no, I'm well there. I was talking about my love life. Where is my lover? Where is he? And she looks and she says, I'm seeing New Jersey. I'm seeing Princeton, Princeton, and so I'm like, oh, Princeton. He's in Princeton. She's like, I don't know, Princeton, Princeton, New Jersey, somewhere in Princeton. He's from Princeton, New Jersey. People. He resides in Princeton, New Jersey. He was born in Princeton, New Jersey. I laughed at this woman. I said, I want my money back. I was like, girl, whatever. He ain't no Jersey. I, I was a little cynical, and. The other thing she said was that he was going to be at Penn. And I said, girl, bye. I didn't already. No, I wasn't going to say I went through people at Penn. But I didn't already have my fair share of horrible Penn men. I was not interested in Penn men. If you ask my best friends, Dr. Parks, you ask Jamarcus, if you ask any of my friends who, who I went to college with, I was anti-Penn. I did not want to date anyone that went to school with me. I was like, oh, that's not happening. I wanted a temple boy. I wanted, uh, I dated, I, you know, Drexel wasn't too bad. I just was like, I'm not dating someone from Penn. We see what happened. There was just all of these signs. There were all of these signs. Another sign was that um, somebody said to me, and again, all this happened the year we first met uh, that summer. And someone said to me, oh, 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 well, was like, oh, you know, you should go to that Beyonce, the Mrs. Carter World Tour, which was at the Wells Fargo Center. You go, your 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 lover will be there. You know, somebody special gonna be there. Some friends said, you know, you might find the, the the man of your dreams, whatever. He's in their room. He's there. And I'm looking like, well, I believe that because the gays are definitely going to the Beyonce concert. Well, the crazy thing is, when I went to the concert, I didn't get chose. But I was I was definitely lively that night. Wowed. And years, like a year after we talked, Mr. Johnson, okay, said to me, he remember he was at the Mrs. Carter World Tour. He went to that Beyonce concert. And he said that somehow he remembered me. I looked familiar. He saw me being wild or whatever at the concert. He was there. We hadn't spoken to each other, but he was there. All I say is that there's invisible string. You just never know how things are going to connect. You just never know that whatever the energy you feel in is in front of you and it's in your eyes and you can't, 
You can't place it. It's, 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 I don't know. It's just a lot of coincidence. And then as, and then as we start to date, you know, I believe in like unique numbers and things. Seven is our number. Seven is my number. Seven is our number. There's like the number seven has played a role in a lot of things between us and everything. It's, it's also interesting in that front. Seven has just been a big reoccurring number in my life for all of the folks that follow all of my crazy stories. So, like, I came out, like, he proposed to me during the seventh, on the seventh anniversary of when I came out to my family. We became officially a couple seven months after we first laid eyes on each other. Um, We got married on the seventh year of us becoming an official couple. Um... Yes, seven has a lot of special significance and symbolism within our whole experience. So, want to know another fun thing? Seven years marks the first time I won a PABJ award between the time I won the Trailblazer Award in 2016 and when I won Journalist of the Year last week. That number seven, baby, don't sleep on it. Seven just has a symbolic thing for me. Lucky number seven. So I do believe, you know, listen, I'm not a psychic, but I just feel like there are things, there's that invisible string as Taylor Swift references in that lovely song. There's those little things that 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 connects people and human experiences and things. And you can ignore the reality of it and act like it doesn't happen, and that's fine. Or you can lean into the supernatural and and, and arguably divine intervention if that's what you believe in. I, I, I just I don't ignore it. I, I've lived a, I've lived too long not to act like everything just falls from the sky. So, um, other places I went to this week, I went to Lock Bar. Lip Brothers had a, a, a actual like Lock Bar dinner that was like intimate and private amongst us boys. We wanted to get together um, and try Lock Bar in Philadelphia without all the razzle dazzle of the grand opening. And so we all four went there, sat down. It's hot. It's the bomb. Like I, I like it's it's I'm sorry. It is give it give it all tens across the board. Lock bar is just as hot. Listen, I went to the one in Baltimore. I've been I, I went to this one in Philly. I mean, they're different in the vibe because just Baltimore and Philly are just different. And that doesn't and there's no shade to either one. Each of them have their own crowd. Like I just feel like the Baltimore crowd is just loud. Baltimore is loud. Have you been to a bar in Baltimore? Oh my good, people just laugh for no reason. And Philly has its moments too. I ain't gonna hold you. Philly can get a little, a little rowdy too. But there's just something about that Baltimore bar that is just so it's just different. <laughs> but um, no, Philly, Philly had a good time. It was lovely there. The seafood tower. Let's talk about it. That was the petite. That was the smallest seafood tower on the menu, y'all. But it was, it was huge. I was like, damn, that's the that's the that's the petite. And it's under $100. And the cool thing I like about it is we were, we're not clams people. We don't really eat clams. You can substitute off of that menu. So we substitute the clams for more oysters. And that was a smart choice. Um, there was a the shrimp cocktail. There was the mussels. There's other things on it. But I love that. I loved it. So I, I highly recommend. Um, I highly recommend uh, the whole experience. So. Yeah, we we gonna definitely definitely talk about it, uh, but yeah, cocktails, great cocktails, fun cocktails, cocktails that make you go woo, okay, fun, fruity, flirty. The cocktails phenomenal. Dessert was really good. Um, 
we got all three of the desserts on the menu. I think we tried all three of them because we just couldn't decide. And when you have a good party, a good party of folks that like to eat, it's always good to just say, let's do it all. If you're into it, there's, there's something for the chocolate lovers. There's something for those creamy dessert lovers, tart lovers. They they had it all. Um, main entree. I got a steak. I had um, the filet mignon. That's been my thing lately. I've been wanting to have steak, but in smaller portions. I'm, I'm not the tomahawk girl I used to be. I like to have filet mignon. And listen, my favorite way of getting my steaks now, y'all, is medium rare. It's been hidden. Medium rare has been where it's at. I can't go back. I've, I'm medium rare. I can't go back. I can't go back. With a glass of red wine. Good red wine. No white. Never white. A bad bitch can never. But no, a good red wine. Um, but I really, really love their filet mignon. Um, and I had a medium, I had a medium rare. And it was good. I'm there now. It took me some time. Look, the last time, well, before this podcast, I was in that middle between medium well and medium. But then I got on medium for about two years. And now I'm at the point where I'm like, okay, we have medium rare. And we're going to stay at medium rare. We're not doing rare. I ain't, no, 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 no. I'm not Hannibal Lecter. But... I do appreciate a good medium rare. Medium rare is where it's at for me. Mr. Johnson, I feel like he'll do it at a good restaurant. And I and my, 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 my husband is very big. Like, he he will do it at a good restaurant, right? But he's medium. And it took some time, okay? But I remember we went out with his family. Again, Trenton in the house. Trenton. Um, they, they were very, um, you know... Well done, baby. They 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 are a well done group. But I love that all of my friends, most of my friends are like medium, which is fine. And then I got a couple of folks that's, you know, you know, they they're on the medium rare side for various reasons. They they've been there, but I'm there. I'm at medium rare. Um but <laughs> I never forget this. We was at oh my god. So I was with my in-laws um and, and my folks, and we were at Maggiano's. This was a couple. This was a couple years ago, um, and we was there. And I remember the steaks were coming. Everybody was getting the steaks, and they just was like, "Well done." And I think they felt like saying "well done" meant that "well done" was a compliment, not for a steak. You actually want to get away from the compliments with a steak. If if, if anything you saying is well, that that that's always a sign. Like you don't want like. Only with steak do you not want compliments on the steak. How you want your steak? Well done. No, no, no well. Nothing well about it. You know? <laughs> you want to get away from anything with the word well. Medium well, well done. You don't want no compliments on the steak. You like, nah, I want, no, I want it bad. I don't want it well. I want it bad. <laughs> but I think they're just like, they're like, well done, like as if it was a compliment. I was like, no, no. And I remember looking at him and I was like, well done. He's like, he just gave me that look like, <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> They're scared of pink. They're scared of red. And I was like, well, if you don't like red, maybe, okay, if you want a steak, me and well, you don't want a steak, you want a fucking burger. Get a burger. And even with a burger, you don't get it like well done. You get it like, unless, I mean, sound like a good burger. I mean, you know, you want to get that like, I, I well, I feel like for a burger, I typically go medium well for a burger. You know, I don't, I don't go in the other direction because burgers are different, I feel like. But I was just like, if you don't, if you, if you don't want blood or you don't want things like, I'm just like it's not, is it blood? I don't, anyway, 
I, I just feel like the red, I'm like, it's not, that's not how meat works. And I'm a Texan. So I'm like, that's not, I hear y'all, but that's not how it works in, in eating food. But they just, I don't know. I'm like, you you don't want a steak. Don't eat a steak. Just, there's no point to eat a steak at that point. I mean, if you want to have fajitas, get it sliced up. But even, let me just, anyway, I was just kind of looking a little, but then I was like, you know what? Everybody's different and we're at Maggiano's. So at the end of the day, is this the place to even order a steak respectfully? I mean, I wouldn't get a steak at Maggiano's personally, but like, listen, everybody's different. And so I had to just sit there and watch them struggle to cut a hockey puck in front of me. But anywho, I digress. Love them. Love them. You gotta love your family, flaws and all. Okay. Um. <laughs> so, lock bar. I had <laughs> filet mignon. Um. The seafood was really good. Of course. Uh. They had the branzino. The branzino is a standout entree. I will say the 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 there was a Chilean sea bass. Um. That was also good. But that branzino at lock bar is top tier. I highly recommend the branzino. If you if you're going there for seafood for an entree. I would definitely recommend, definitely recommend the Branzino. And appetizers was good. I would recommend the fried lobster tail. The fried lobster tail was definitely doing its thing. So, yeah, Lock Bar was great. Um, went to a couple of holiday-themed events. You know, it's the holidays. It's just like, damn, where is time going? We're, we're headed to December with nothing stopping us. My goodness, what a year. What a year, people. What a year. Um, but yes, we are, we are, yes, it's, we're in the holidays. It's the most wonderful time of the year. They'll be dancing. And I'm like, that's all in my head. Like every time I think of the holiday season, that's the thing. That's the song that's in my head next to Mariah Carey. But I, I typically wait for Mariah Carey, All I Want for Christmas. I wait for that. I wait for All I Want for Christmas with her. So, because she's in her own, she's in her own vibe. Um, you know, that song never gets, oh, that is my song, okay? That is my song. So, let me tell you about this experience. Um, two places, Butcher Bar and The Prime Rib both have their own holiday-themed menus, cocktails, drinks. Um, everything is starting. Prime Rib, which is at Casino Live, which I've been going to more often lately. I love that place. It's, it's, it's growing on me. Um, for sure. Um, they have a new holiday cocktail menu that's dope. Um, uh, Butcher Bar has a holiday cocktail menu that's also pretty dope as well. Um, who else got holiday stuff? Um, I went to El Murky, um, for a small little bar crawl that was over there on Chestnut, that, that, that whole little rent house area. It was, um, Butcher Bar... Bolo, which I haven't been to in a minute, and um, there was another spot, but um, it was it was it was some fun stuff going on over there too, um, and it's it's the holidays. the The restaurants are back in full swing. I'm really loving that people are having um, these these moments. You know, I, I'm I'm really happy that people are coming back and bringing back. Um, you know, the food and things like that. Um, because it's, it's a lot. Um, it's a lot. And 
you know. Mm. I just love how they drinks. Um, I love how they drinks and you know, everything that comes with them and, and all the fun stuff. I mean, you, you kind of want like the desserts, you kind of want to be experimental, but like for me personally, my holiday, I'm not an eggnog cocktail girl. I'm scared. I'm scared. I don't know. I don't know if it's because of the dairy. I don't know because of what, but something about the, the eggnog and some of the stuff that's going on there. I'm kind of like, you know, um, you got to, you know, try different stuff, but like, I don't know, no eggnogs. I mean, maybe with wrong or conquito, but like, I need, I need folks I know and trust to make those drinks. I don't know if I can just go to a bar. So I'm more of the vodka, cranberry, candy cane, maybe situation, you know, a good old cranberry cocktail-esque or uh, apple cider, cinnamon, you know, hot toddy. Like I'm more on that direction with the holiday cocktails. But um, Butcher Bar and the Prime Rib had some really fun drinks. Like, they got some for everybody. They got all types of liquors. There was a drink at the Prime Rib that had, like, a, a, a Ciroc vodka, but a coconut vibe. And I was really feeling in the season with that. Um, so, you know, it it, it, it goes. It, it definitely goes. Um, but, you know, sometimes you just got to, you know, you got to check out the, the, the different spots and get in where you can fit in. Because the holiday scene... Um, is definitely one for the taking. Um, but one of the things I am not doing, and I'm just saying this now, is I'm not doing holiday sandwiches. I'm not trying your gobblers. I'm not that girl. I'm not a gobbler girl. I know there's a lot of um girls that be doing the oh we're gonna do the gobbler and we're gonna do this the Wawa sandwiches. I'm sorry. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna shade you, but I'm not. I'm not a gobbler girl. We're not doing the. These these turkey gravy sandwich. I'm not I'm not beat for it. I'm not beat for it. Um, you know, because I know there's people that's like, oh, you know, well, what about this? And I'm like, uh-uh. like we want you to try this. I'm like, eh, no, baby, I'm not. I'm not beat for it. I, I thought I was. I I thought I was that girl, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think. The more I, the more I, um, I think about certain, um, holiday stuff, like foods, I'm like, I don't want people, I don't want to eat no one else's, you know, you know, I don't, I don't want to try anyone else's, you know, uh, holiday food that isn't already, you know, something I've already had or vetted, you know, um, personally. So just putting that out there. Um, I'm thinking about there was another place that I'm thinking about that I saw that there was like this this I don't know if the word is a bar crawl but I'm thinking it was it was butcher bar it was there was another place that did that did this interesting so El Murky I tried oh it was El Murky butcher bar and Bolo they had the crawl that was suited. They all had to crawl. They're under the same group. They had a crawl that was that was I went to over the weekend. But I went to El Murky. And let me talk about El Murky specifically. It is a um art, art I think it's I think it's Argentina or Ecuadorian um street food. Like, but it's not Mexican food. It's 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 Latin food. And it's like different types of street food. They have like these really huge um what are those things called? Uh 
churros, churros. It was like with this this brown caramel sauce. It was dope. It was a great vibe. It's on Chestnut. It's underrated. It's like a great place to go for lunch. Um, but I, I highly recommend it. But I just want to put that there out there. Um, other places I went to um, that I liked. I had brunch this weekend at High Street. Brunch is officially at High Street. I had dinner there earlier when they had their grand open a couple of weeks ago, but they now have brunch. And brunch was brunching, baby. Oh, my goodness. First of all, the pastries that are made at High Street are some of the best pastries. They have the, the, some of the best pastries in the city, period. High Street Bakery, their pizza, anything with flour and dough they make in there, they do their damn thing. The chefs there are incredible. Um, Ellen Yen doesn't miss. Ellen Yen doesn't miss. I think Ellen Yen is one of the most consistent restaurants. And she won the James Beard Award this year for Best Restaurant. I mean, all of the high street properties, which is Fork, um, High uh, High Street uh, Hoagies, High Street Provisions, and, and which is connected. Um, like I said, I said Fork, the high street restaurant itself, um, A Bar, um, A Kitchen, uh, these are these are great places. Like she just all of them are good. A lot of people have restaurants where it's like hit or miss. You don't you know, some stuff you like, some stuff you don't like. I'm not going to name names, but like it's you know, she she's something different. And I'm 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 happy to call her a friend. I'm happy to call her somebody that I look up to in this in this restaurant industry. She's she's been doing this. She's the beat. She's the goat. She's a beast. She's a goat. You know, she's one of the goats of the Philadelphia food scene in the, in the East Coast, to be honest. She's one of the goats. Um, she can bring out anybody to a party, okay? She can get Stephen Starr out and Mark Vetri out and Michael Solomon out in the same room, okay? She has that kind of pool. She is the just, she is a quintessential restauranter. I, I, I can't, I, I just, hands down. So High Street is great. When I went to the, the I tried their food um, at the new location. She popped up and saw me. I was like, oh, hey, Ellen. She was sweet. But the, the brunch is incredible. They're doing brunch and lunch now, not just dinner. Uh, they're do, they, they've been doing dinner, but they have a lunch and brunch menu that is just as great as a dinner menu. And you can go there um, for yourself and you can make reservations and check it out. So just putting it out there. Um, tried the fall menu at Restaurant Alexander in Rittenhouse. I went with my good friend Mike Banks, and we was just catching up. And he never been, but he said it was one of the best meals he's ever had in years. Because I mean, Chef, I mean the executive chef, Montana Houston, Jameer Wimberly Cole, who's the um chef de cuisine, um they're not they're killing it. I mean, their fall menu is like everything that I wanted to be cuz I know what they can do. I've I've gone so many times at this point. I'm like a super fan. Um I know what they can do. And I've I was they have fried chicken finally on the menu. Y'all don't understand. This summer when we did the cancel dinner for those who went, they had this incredible fried chicken. Everybody loved it. I was like, why is this chicken on the menu? You got to get on the menu. They perfected that recipe. It is now on the menu. And it is one of the most popular items on their menu. That chicken was good. Okay. It was phenomenal. It was great. Um, Loved it down. I mean, I don't know what's going on in this city, but there seems to be a fried chicken movement because as I'm talking about their fried chicken, there's another place that is that we can't sleep on a fried chicken. But they their menu, their fall menu is on point. They have a I, I tried for the first time 
they just released it. They have a lamb loin on the menu that is just incredible. There's a dish on the side of it that I thought was foie gras, but it was something else. But it was good. It was really Frenchy. It was very like livers, chicken livers and mousse. It was very good. Um, I had also, what did I have? I had the fried chicken. I had the pork belly. I had, um, oh, the octopus. Did I do octopus? I did octopus. And I'm thinking about what was the, the, the main course in front. Oh, the duck. Top, 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 top three places in the city to get duck. And I wouldn't even say it's number three, but it's in the top three best places that serve duck. The duck at Restaurant Alexander is, to me, they're one of the most iconic signature dishes. Like nothing above anything else there. Get the duck. If you don't know what to get on that menu, get the duck. The duck is just hitting. Oh, I love fall eating because fall eating, I get to eat the things I really love, things that are rich, things that are fun. Um, but they're killing over there. They're just exceptional. And it's never and it's never a bad time at Restaurant Alexander. I'll be back again next month. It's just a habit. I'm just I feel like that's the one restaurant I can go to every month and never feel bored because they're always doing something fun. And it's just it's just good food and it's so comfortable. It's easy to get a reservation. Like I just love that place. So yeah. Speaking of fried chicken though. I went to the Twisted Tail on South Street. Look at y'all. I bet somebody like, damn, you be going everywhere. Yes, I do. That's what a food editor does, baby. An editor of a food publication has to go and try the food. Because how can I write about something I have ate? I'm not going to throw shade at some of your faves. But some of your faves be out here, you know, throwing up pictures and leaving. They don't eat the food. They just, you know, no, 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 no. We got to eat the food. I, I can't. I can't not not go. Now, if I got to manage my lunch and my breakfast situation so that, you know, we we not, you know, I got to do what I got to do. But I have to have the food. I, I can't, I can't, if I, I'm not ever going to promote a restaurant or write about a restaurant and I haven't tried the food. I just feel like that's intellectually dishonest. I just don't know how do you do that. I don't know how to do that, personally. Some people found a way to do it. I'm just not that person. I have to describe the food. I can't say it's spicy if it's not spicy. Well, the menu says it's spicy. No, no. I'm going to act because, you know, y'all know. Y'all know how these restaurants do. They'll say, we got the biggest this, the biggest that. If I, and, and you know what happens? You know what happens about credibility? Is that you go there, right? And who told you to go? When I write a review, when I write something about a restaurant, people literally make decisions with their money to go. I take it seriously, right? You are a consumer. Look at this economy. You just can't be out here going to duds and flops. You can't. You you just can't. Money is scarce. People are trying to figure out how to navigate different places to go, right? For different reasons, right? When you go to a restaurant, you're making an investment. And if you're going to read reviews and you're going to talk to people who've been in a restaurant scene that, that has done the work, you want to know where you're going and what your experience is going to be like. If I'm going to be that guy that's going to curate and gather that information, I got to let you all know what it's giving. And I'm not going to be a soundboard for PR. And there's a lot of racist people in this industry. I'm going to keep it 100. There are a lot of racist old white men and some of our own, okay, that don't like the fact that my smart, unapologetic, proud black millennial self is sitting at these restaurants and having an opinion that does not match in the line with theirs. Now, let me be clear, because I don't want people to, to, to think I'm talking about any 
of reporters. I am not talking about Craig LeBond. Craig LeBond and I are cool. I, I really like him a lot. He shouts me out. He shows love. Craig and I are cool. I'm not talking about Craig LeBond. I'm talking about other folks, and I'm not going to name names with other people. And I'm not talking about Michael Klein. Michael Klein does good work. You know, he's doing his thing. I'm doing my thing. We can all coexist. I'm not talking about Michael Klein. I just want to put that out there because some of y'all will go run with this and say, oh, I know. Who. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about them. Decent people. They've been cool with me. They've been respectful of me. We all, we all, we all getting paid. We all getting fed. Okay. But there are other people in this industry and it's not necessarily media. Let me be clear. There's some haters. There's some haters in media. But it's people who are in these restaurant groups, these some of these PR people, some of these other folks that are haters. And I'm never going to go up to them and roll up in their face and say anything. I keep it moving. But there are some haters. And they, and, they, and they feel some type of way. And it's the elitism. Because let me tell you something about the racism that I, I deal with doing this work. And listen, it's no different from politics. Y'all know that. I mean, oh, when I came in the door trying to cover politics, like, who the fuck do you think you are? There was attitude. There was there was people like, well, why are you doing this? But you know what I've learned and why I can confidently say there's a double standard and there's racism? Because there are people that's like that have said things like, you know, I'm surprised he's the editor. You know, he doesn't, you know, he's super young and he needs to develop his skills and thinking about food. And you know, I don't know if he is, the, you know, equipped to do this. Do you know how old the editor of Philly Mag's FUBU's publication was before the new food editor came. They were under 30. Under 30. Do you know that that editor, who's under 30, might be 30 now, is now the editor of The Infatuation in Philly? Do you know that a lot of the actual food writers, the, the, the white girls, because it's mostly white girls and white men, there is only another black food writer consistent that's at the infatuation. I know that's black, but the diversity in food coverage actually skews either older upper white male or younger white woman, period. It's not that many food writers of color. Now, under my leadership as the editor of Eater Philly, I've onboarded diversity. There is other people writing about food under my publication that does not fit that demographic that was being described. I say all that to say that for a long time in this city, the people that's been writing about food has either been older white men or younger white women. So all of these standards that are people are having about me or trying to move that goalpost, it's racist. I'm sorry. I, I can't. What makes me different from the rest of them? Because uh, I can tell you what makes me different outside of my melanin. It could be my years of actually going to restaurants consistently. It could be the countless levels of my journalistic skills that I can transfer from one place to the next and a versatility that makes me feel like I'm a young Meryl Streep in this local Philly media market. It could be my over a decade of award-winning journalism that has covered arts, culture, politics, social justice, and fucking more. And so when you are at this point in the game, you're just not going to let people try you. And I'm at a point in my career where I'm not about to let nobody try me on what I can do. I'm more, con I'm confident as fuck. 
And I'm not going to let anybody look at me and question what I can do. So the little side remarks, the little, you know, that was an interesting pick. Yeah, it was an interesting pick. And that traffic every month that continues to skyrocket is also interesting. Because when you come to a publication where people gave up on it, they said, oh, the Inquirer, you know, they got all the food coverage. Eater is dead. Eater is this. Eater is that in Philly. Oh, no one reads anymore. And you come, you don't come to do it common. You come to do unconventional. And what we've done, what I've been able to achieve since I've been in this position, the numbers don't lie, baby. The energy don't lie. How many people was reading Eater Philly like this, engaging with the content like this, talking about us in stories that have now gone national multiple times? Exactly. So I tell people all the time, if you don't see the bigger picture, maybe your lens is too small. Maybe your vantage part point is too far. Maybe your inability to imagine something different that does not center around you and your white sensitivities and your racism is not my problem. It's a personal problem. And so I wanted to be known that it's always the people on the sidelines. It's always a motherfucker with no abracadabra that's trying to talk about magic. You have no abracadabra. You, what have you done? Where is your fucking wand? Find your wand and tap on it and get into your and tap into your magic. But what's going over here, the sorcery over here, baby, it's gonna keep happening. And that's where I'm I'm at. Like I just I just see and hear a couple, you know, a little, a little this, a little that. I see stuff. I'm just like, you got all these opinions, but, but but where are you sitting at? But where are you sitting at in the conversation? Where? And I think that's the problem with people in Philly. Some folks in Philly, maybe I'll let me add, is that you go, how many times are you going to play the critic before you actually do the fucking work? It's easy to sit and talk about what other people are doing and how they're doing it. When you're not doing the goddamn thing. Now, I'm never going to complain about a worker that's critiquing labor because you're doing the work, right? But there's some people out here just, just always have an opinion, but they're not doing any work. And that's the kind of opinions I don't value. Like, I value and respect folks that are in this field that are, are looking at the nuance and have different thoughts about it, right? But there's some people out here who just always, always just the mouth, the mouth. And, and they try to act like there's a valid critique. And it's like, but it's not because I'm just like, did you ever have that smoke for any of these other editors? Oh, that's right. You wasn't reading their shit. Mm. Just saying, not throwing shots. I'm just saying it's like where, you know, I don't I, I, I used to be like, well, where was the critique for these folks and this? And I'm like, oh, you wasn't even engaging with them. You know, like I, I, I wonder how Beyonce feels. I, 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 I could never know exactly how she feels, but I wonder what the Oprahs of the world feel. Like when people got all this about any project they do or anything they do, and then you, you go, well, well, they didn't say that when so and so did it, but you're like, well, they wasn't even checking for so and so. There is something about people like us that get the folks like them in their bag, and when you recognize that. There will never be a pitch perfect, you know, response from any group. Then that might mean two things. One, that you're doing your job. And two, that you're doing your job. <laughs> so I just, I've come to that acceptance of that. Like, 
that you can, you know, that there will always be people who are just envious. They're jealous. And I used to always think to myself, what can I do to not make a person feel that way? And I was like, there's nothing I can do because it's not my problem. And when I've accepted that, when I've accepted that these things aren't my problem, then I was able to stop putting the labor on me to figure it out for the folks. I think sometimes we give ourselves way too much power on other people's lives and other people's experiences. I've come to grow to the reality that what is for me and what I'm doing, that's what I can only prioritize. Now, this is not me saying I can't be humanitarian and consider other people's lives. I'm not talking about that. But what I'm saying is, is that when it comes to people's own insecurities, that's a journey. <laughs> They're going to go on their own journey, someone once said wisely. Um, that's a journey they have to go. And the only thing I'm going to do nowadays is I acknowledge it. <laughs> and that may piss a person off, but I, I, I've done it. Recently, there was somebody who just came at me with advice that I wasn't asking for. And the advice was actually trash advice. Like, no shade. It was not good advice. And I just respectfully said, listen, um, thank you, but, you know, I'm going to go a different direction. And rather than accept that advice, or accept my response to the unsolicited advice, they went on, oh, you know, you're burning bridges. This. And I said, you know what? I wasn't going to go there, but I said, you know what? I, I'm not going to hold you. I said, I feel like a lot of what you're telling me is misplaced and misguided bitterness that has nothing to do with me. And honestly, whatever that hurt is, whatever that little, little personal beef you had in the head with me, you need to let that go or because it's not going to help you proceed as a person. Yeah, I said that to somebody recently. Like, I had to literally say that. I'm like, the bitterness is holding you back. The bitterness is, is not making you move forward. You got to let that shit go. Now, you can be, you can talk about stuff with your friends and vent about shit. But when it comes to professional and moving things, you, you, you're never going to be able to move forward because you got to remember, like, look, I'm going to call a spade a spade. You, you know, there's that other group. We're just going to call them the other group because um, I'm not giving them no more pr promo. But, you know, some of those people, the way that they're moving, they're spending so much time trying to bash and trash the group they left rather than explain to people exactly what the fuck is going on with what they're trying to do on their side of fence. I'm not playing defense. I have nothing to defend. I said on my podcast last week, and I'll say it again, the work is the response. And somebody listened to that, quoted me on Twitter, you know, my girl, and she, you know, listen, I'm going to always say the work is the response. That's going to be the response for me. That's my press release. I'm not giving a lot of people who don't mean well for me a response or an explanation. When you're dealing with bad faith actors, you can over you can over communicate, over explain all day, and the quote unquote logic is never going to apply. And when you recognize you're dealing with bad faith actors, then you don't waste your time. I always tell my good Judy, Dr. Parks, I say to her all the time, I say, listen, you get on Twitter, girl, and you really be arguing with these idiots. Who the fuck is that on Twitter who said what they said about so and so? Why do we care? 
And I say that to say that there are some bad, we have to acknowledge that we live in a world where there are people who intend to do bad things. They intend to be obtuse and contrarian on purpose. They don't want to see any side. Some of them get paid to be ignorant. We got to acknowledge that there are bad faith actors in our society. There are people that legitimately will never see the right side of the issue on purpose. Their intention is to stroke chaos. They're a chaos agent. And when you recognize that there are people like that in the world, you stop engaging them because you're going to waste your breath. You're going to waste your energy, you're going to waste your time. And when you recognize people like that in your world or your environment, the best thing to do is to fucking ignore them as much as you can. Now, if they roll up on you, you know, squab up, right? But if you get in a situation where you're dealing with chaos agents in your environment, the number one thing is not to feed them. Not to feed them. There are people who love telling me every five seconds what somebody, what some, what some hating ass person got to say. And I just be sitting back like, and who are they on the totem pole? Like, we're, we're not totem pole. Where are they on the menu, respectfully? Where are they on the menu? Where are they? Where are they in the conversation? Why is this a priority to me? Like, I, I can, I, I know there's tons of people who have opinions about me every day. And because of who I am and what I do, that's never going to change. But what can change is how I choose to react and respond. And what I've learned is, is that the response to anyone that's questioning your, your hustle, your flow, your, 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 your passion, your, your, your talent, anybody who's questioning that, the best thing to fucking do is just fucking do the work. I think about so many people who have been called all types of names. You got to remember that 20 years ago, people said Beyonce's no Ashanti as if she was lower than. And what are we, and, and, and I love Ashanti, that's my Libra girl, but with all due respect, we're talking about her and Nelly Morton, we're talking about her and her music. And Beyonce's about to have a concert tour that's about to be in every major American theater. She just fucking did the work. You know, people was like, I don't know about this, this, this black woman from the South on TV with that hair and those and, and she's a little curvy. I don't know how she's gonna do on TV. I don't think she's the good fit. And here we are seeing her be the executive producer of a film that she was nominated for an Oscar for over 30 years ago. Oprah Winfrey with the color purple. That is inspired by not just the movie, but the musical that she also was a producer of. The work is the response. You say this can't happen, but look at the headline. You said I can't do this, but look at the work. Look, 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 look what the survey says. My entire career has been filled with people with giving me optics. Oh, you can't do it that way. You can't write it that way. You can't say it that way. People are not going to adjust to that. Oh, you can't do this podcast. I don't think people are going to want to hear you talk for over two hours. Seventy-five thousand monthly downloads later, over what two years, right? Three years actually. Next month, I'm here. Next case. <laughs> so, um, moving along. Um, Eater's holiday gift guide came out. Um, and 
it's a it's a list of fun stuff. If you are on Eater's website, we have an Eater's holiday uh, gift guide that has 17 gifts that are from Philly that are food inspired. Not food. Not everything is food. We have a couple of food items, but there's like food paraphernalia. One of my favorite things on the gift guide this year is there is a shirt called South Finley, which is like South Philly, but they spell it funny. But it's called South Philly or Finley or whatever. And the shirt says Scrapple, but it has the Snapple like logo art. And I thought that was pretty, that was so Philly and so cool. There's Honeysuckle um, Provision gift cards, which I highly recommend. There's a lot of restaurants where I'm like, uh, you don't want to get a gift card, but this is worth it because you don't, you don't just get food. You can get books there and other cool black owned, black authored cookbooks and things like that. Um, we also have... Um, some cool like trinkets. We have coffee mugs from different places. Down North Pizza has a really cool, um, you know, uh, a t-shirt that they got to celebrate their anniversary. I think it's their, uh, I can't remember which anniversary they're at now, but they have a cool t-shirt that they're selling that's going to support them. Um, they do a lot of work around, you know, of course, uh, addressing mass incarceration. So proceeds go to those efforts. So if you really want to get a cool uh, shirt from them, that's the place. All of our items can be purchased online. So when you go to the Eater uh, gift guide, you can click on the tab and it takes you straight to the market. Isn't that cool? Like, it's super dope. So we really love these items and we, you know, support local um, black and brown owned, you know, restaurants and spots and also diverse spots. We have Sisterly um, Love which is the Ellen Yen group with all the women um, chefs and people in the restaurant industry together. There's You could donate, make a donation to support them. That's also a cool holiday gift. So we put it there so you can make donations, um, which will help their efforts to increase representation of women and diversity in the Philadelphia food scene. So, you know, check them out as well. But love them a lot. So that's the Eater's Holiday Guide. Um, other great news because you all been wanting, you've all asked about this over the weekend. The internet has been talking about this great experience that I have and I can't get enough of it. Um, I am doing an incredible project that people have been talking about. So for the past year, you know, I've been in New York city and you notice I've been going to New York and I've been like low key about what I've been doing. And I know some of y'all remember a couple of times I was making these trips to New York and like, what is Ernest doing in New York? Well, I can finally reveal what I was doing. I was filming for this incredible experience that really, you know, just merges my love for journalism and academia. Like, as you all know, I am, you know, an adjunct professor at Cheney University, the nation's first HBCU, not Lincoln, just saying. Um, and I'm going to be an instructor, I'm an instructor and industry expert for the New York, the, the, the NYU Rolling Stone Modern Journalism course. So NYU, they have faculty. They also include, um, journalists from Rolling Stone, other news organizations, which as you all know, I'm a proud contributor at Rolling Stone. And basically they're helping the public learn the industry, um, the practices, the basic skills needed to produce news stories. I mean, we're talking audio, visual, and digital mediums. Like we're doing some really cool journalism here. Um, this is an in-depth journalism course. It covers everything from an overview of investigative tools and techniques. You know, we're doing interview skills. We're doing journalistic ethics. There's audio and visual storytelling. We're bringing, we're using social media for news gathering, distribution, and helping people build a personal brand. Um, the course has about, has six online modules and a lot of skill building activities. These modules about, you know, like three to five hours, um, but they're broken into shorter lessons that students can complete at their own pace. Now, when you finish this program, y'all, you can get a, you will get a non-credit certificate of completion from the New York University Journalism School. Okay. Pretty dope. 
If you're interested in this, you can definitely check it out um, and find out who else is a part of this program. Um, the link is in my bio on Twitter and or Instagram. So if you're on Twitter, click the link in my bio and you can click and find out about this course. Or you can go to Instagram and click the link in the bio. It says modern. I'm on the ad. They did a YouTube, like a little ad. And I'm in the commercial, y'all, for the program. So it was pretty dope. I filmed this for several hours, did several questions, gave so much good advice. I'm throughout the program, throughout the modules. Um, I do a lot of work around personal branding for journalists and people that's in the that's like trying to figure out if they want to do freelance. So many people have already hit me up and told me they're in the program. Um, they they're applying. They're they're trying to get a role. It is not. Your traditional, like, honestly, look, I've always told people, like, you know, look, I didn't go to journalism school. I got my degree in communications and my master's in communication management, but I never did journalism school per se. I was the person who learned from the trade. Like, I went out and did um, lots of internships. I did a lot of fellowships. And through that, through that skill, that's how I learned how to be good at what I do. I went to a lot of conventions and things. But nowadays, I feel like there needs to, the, the, you know, it's hard to find a good program that will give you these skills, give you the hard concrete skills. You might already be in the field doing it already. And so you need a buffer, right? And so this program is, is a really cool course. I personally highly recommend it, of course, because I'm a part of it, because I know that the things that I'm telling people, and I know what a lot of these other instructors and experts are saying, is where we are today. That's why it's called modern journalism, because a lot of the old dated, we don't even use the word objective anymore in journalism. I, when I hear people say, I ain't supposed to be objective, what the fuck are you like? Come I understand lawyers now. I understand doctors. I understand clinicians. It must be annoying when you hear people, right? The public use old terms to describe, you know, situations. Like you're like, we don't even use that term anymore. We don't even describe it like that. We don't even seek to do that with patients anymore. I get it. Because in journalism, I hear so many people use terms out of context. They don't understand what they're saying. They don't, you know, it, it, a lot of stuff is dated and they're just like the one word I wish we could kill. Stop saying objective. Humans cannot be objective. We're not fucking robots. I know that you all are used to hearing that term back in the day, but to tell you something, I'm going to tell you a fun fact. The term objectivity in journalism was often used as a way to gatekeep black and brown people and women from being journalists. I want you to think about that, that there is inherent racism and sexism in the term objectivity in journalism, because the whole point they would say was that you got to separate yourself and take yourself out of the work that you only can focus on, you know, the subject matter. Now, think about that very carefully. If you are a journalist, first of all, let's just talk about on a surface level. How can you as a human being, as a person, separate your lived experience, your insight, and all of those things when you are covering a story that impacts aspects of humanity. How is that possible? Exactly. But let's think about where we were in society when this term was being used. So as the world turned, right, you see the social, you see the civil rights movement, you see the women's rights movement, right? When there begins to be integration in newsrooms, there were some newspaper, lots of news outlets that did not want black people covering racism or discrimination because they argued that, oh, you will be object, you, you won't, you can't be objective to that. And so a lot of black journalists have not been given the ability to be on the beat, to be able to cover 
issues that impacted them for years. They put them in the fashion part. They put them in places that were like isolating at times. They would put them in, you know, some random aggregated section. They, they never gave a lot of those journalists. A couple of them made it through, right? Chuck Stone and Asa Moore and Mary Mason. But, but a lot of those people, some of these people had to go at black media companies. They could not go in predominantly white newsrooms and do the work because a lot of times people would consider them to be biased. And if they did get the job, their editors scrutinized their work more than others because of the fact that they assumed they couldn't be objective, right? There are issues like that with women in newsrooms, where there are some women who were being told they couldn't cover sexual assault on Me Too because they felt like there would be bias in how they would cover as a woman. It's like these were the discriminatory excuses to discriminate. So when you hear the term objective, we in the industry now are pushing back at that because we recognize that that was a way a tool to suppress marginalized communities from covering their communities. So we don't say objective. It doesn't make any sense, right? And also, here's the issue, right? And here's the counter to why the term objective is hypocritical for those who try to arbitrate it. How do you think a newsroom that's predominantly white in black and brown cities across America can objectively, quote unquote, cover those communities when there is no one in those newsrooms that look like them? Oh, okay. So when it was when it was when it was flipped in that direction, a lot of white journalists began to wake up and realize, oh shit, we 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 can't we can't keep doing objective argument. Oh, because you realize that at the end of the day, the the job is to be fair and balanced. The job is to be accurate. The job is to be fair. The job is to have balance. That is what is the ethos to me of journalism is being fair is being accurate and being balanced, okay? Fair meaning, did you properly acknowledge whatever the sentiment of the issue? Are you making sure, right, that you are being fair and allowing people's voices to be included that is essential to the story, okay? Are you making sure you're not leaving out important details, right? Are you being accurate? Are you actually stating the facts and not your own version of them? Are you actually being realistic about the scope to which you're describing the situation? And also balance. Are we allowing different types of views on the issue share proper footing in the space? And that not, that's not to be confused with giving a white supremacist a mouthpiece. But are we acknowledging contrast in a way that accurately depicts the situation? That's the principles of modern journalism when it comes to the ethos. Objectivity be gone. Because what objectivity is calling for is calling for an unfair, unrealistic expectation that disproportionately harms and suppresses the work of black and brown and women journalists. Take my course, y'all. That's all I got to say. Y'all going to enjoy this. Y'all going to enjoy it. Shout out to Yellow Brick. Shout out to NYU. Shout out to Rolling Stone. If you want to hear more mature conversations about journalism like that, take my course. Be a part of my own journalism. Sign up. Register. Enroll. Learn what the packages are, the cool stuff they got going on. But it's one cool course. If you really want to elevate your understanding of the journalism media, you want to get a certificate, it looks good on the resume. 
for all of my folks that's in the industry that's doing work, it looks good to have something like that on your resume because it can, it can, you can inform people that, hey, I know journalism, I know media, I'm, I'm educating, I'm, I'm talking to the, 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 the major tastemakers and, and influencers in the business. Take the course if you can. So, shameless plug. And lastly, I, I got to say this because my good friend, okay, Dr. Parks was on Instagram. And see, I, I like to always, you know, they're not going to tell me I write all the time, but I'm going to count my own rights, okay? She has been talking about um, this whole situation with pre-check. She went to New Orleans. She did not do pre-check. She waited over an hour in line. And she got up early in the morning to go down to New Orleans with her girls. You know, my good Judy Jess and Rwanda and them. They had a good old time in New Orleans. You know, they trying to do a little thing. I see. I see. You know, nobody wants to make time with me, make plans. But you know, they can just take trips to New... You know, I'm feeling some... Mm. All right. So, <laughs> she was in that line and said next time she got to do pre-check. Told you. See, let me tell y'all something. This holiday season... These airports have already been acting up. This summer should have showed y'all what the airports were doing. These airports are acting up. Pre-check. Get pre-check. TSA pre-check. Stop being basic. It's going to cost you. You might miss your flight. I got my whole family on, on TSA pre-check. I can't do long lines. I'm not waiting that long. Don't do it. Pre-check is the way to go. I'm just going to have to keep saying that. Pre-check is the way to go. Let me tell you something. Get it. It's 80, I think it's like $85, but it lasts for five years and then you get to renew at a cheaper price. So I just want to put that out there because some of y'all, you know, we talk about pre-check and I'm just like, they are like, oh, I don't want to pay that. Listen, it's getting longer. The lines are getting longer. The the you, Listen, I don't, listen, we're still in the pandemic. People are still getting COVID out there. I just don't want to be any, I, my mindset at the airport is, I'm not trying to be there all day. I, I do nonstop flights only. I only do nonstop flights. I, I can't do connectors. I just can't. My patience, I just can't. One way in, one way out, okay? But like at the airport, I don't want to be at the airport that long. I arrived to the airport like 45, like an hour before the flight time. I, I just, because I got pre-check. I don't play. I got clear. I'm just going in and out. I'm not trying to eat. I'm not trying to make it an experience. I really don't. Now, some of y'all love to be at the airport and be there for hours and go to restaurants. I, I just don't. I feel like the stuff be overpriced. I, I, I'm, on, I'm, I'm on a plane. I'm out. Like, I'm not trying to be at the airport that long. That's just my thing. So get pre-checked. I highly recommend it this season. Give your, treat yourself. If you can get yourself nails and jewelry and things, get you some pre-check. Don't you want to travel a lot more comfortably and efficiently? Don't you just want to not have to take off all your clothes when you go through the skin? Like, I don't have to take off anything hardly. I think, I don't think I to take off my belt, I don't think, at this point. I think all I got to take off mostly now is my, um, my Bluetooth, you know, my Beats Bluetooth. But that's about it. When you pre-check, okay? They don't they don't do too much. They don't give you too much of a fuss. So just wanted to put that out there uh for my people. Like, don't sleep on it. Don't sleep on it. So lastly, before I get to um hot topics, um, over the weekend I went to the Attic Youth Center's 30th anniversary um celebration. Attic Youth Center is an LGBTQ um space, safe space for youth that are dealing with coming out. Some of them might be um, couch surfing. Some of them might be displaced because of homophobia and hate. 
and it's a safe space for certain kids. You know, years ago, I used to be over there, um, not as an alum or, or a participant, but as a mentor. And there are kids that are there that this is a place they sneak to. Some kids are in high schools where they're getting bullied or getting picked on um, for being different, for being queer, for being trans. And a lot of the young people, some some young people, you know, they go to their high schools or schools and they don't feel seen. They they're bullied or 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 not bullied. Maybe people just don't know that they're they're out. They're not out. They don't feel like they could be out on in their high schools. So they come to the Attic Youth Center where they're around other kids who are just like them and they do activities, they do arts and crafts, they they do a lot of um, professional development training to help these kids, you know, potentially get jobs. They also do programming to just help kids feel seen and heard. Maybe they need a mentor or somebody that they can't with their parents or, or can't with other folks. And, you know, I, I I think about that, like how many places in this country don't have an addict you've seen, like a, a place like that for kids to just be them, you know? Um, so it was, it was a it, it's it's a touching organization. Um, so I went. It's my first time going to the neighborhood. I went with my good friend, my good Judy, my bestie Sharon Cooks, and we went there. Fabulous. And I hadn't been in the neighborhood in a long time. Like been in the scene, you know. I left um, and went to Hollywood. No, I'm joking. I went to you know other opportunities, and also I left the neighborhood with there was just so much drama and so much backbiting that I kind of. Left and didn't look back. I just, I just needed space. But it was interesting because when I went, I went because I was invited. Um, but I was definitely missed. I felt the love in the room. So many people I hadn't seen in years were like thanking me and talking about how much you know they see me out here doing my thing and they read what I do and and how they think about what I do and how all of this, you know, all of my glow up, you know, cause a lot of them, listen, they was some haters back then. Some of them, some of them was just like, they used to just, you know, man, they used to, the shit they used to fucking say and look at me now. Nah, I mean, it was, it was a homecoming um, of sorts. And there was some people in there that I saw that I, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm good on them. Yeah, we name names on Ernestie speaking sometimes. Like Amber Hikes, I'm not. I'm still not a fan. Good luck to that woman and what she do, but mm-mm, not my cup of tea. Um, she was there last night, of course. You know, she can't help herself. She can't help to make something about her. I'm okay. Be nice. Be nice. I'm gonna be nice. Um, but she was there. You know, bless her heart. Um, a couple other folks up in there that I just was like, oh, you still around? But there was a lot of great people I did like, and I had great people I saw. Like, of course, Chris Bartlett, who I'm always hanging out with. So it wasn't like a homecoming for us. It was almost like a, hey, man, saw you last week. How you doing? He was at the gala last week. So it was just a catch up. Reggie Shuford, who is now in the South now doing great work. He used to be over the executive director of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. He stopped and came by for one night. And so it was great to see him. Uh, love Reggie. He's an incredible civil rights attorney. One of the best we have in the country. Um, I saw Rulandall, you know, the the first openly LGBTQ member of city council to be elected in Philadelphia City Council. She was there. She was. She's always a joy. Um, bumped into a, a couple of good folks. You know, my people from Cashman Associates. We was at the Cashman table. It was a good time. But it was just nice to see see some folks. And the person that I was there to see the most, which you all saw on the internet and y'all went crazy, was T.S. Madison. She was honored with an award um, and she gave quite the speech, actually. Um, she was there and she was fabulous. So 
the funny story about her and I, um, I actually want to play the audio, if I can, of what she said and put it in context. So let me find the I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to play it because I, I need y'all to hear what she says and explain because a lot of y'all was asking, like, what was this? What was the situation with you and T.S.? Because it was years ago. So let me let me find it. Let me see. Let me get it. Let me see if I can play it. Can I play it? Uh, I'm going to play it on my I know I'm going to play on my phone. Madison, loud, loud, and in color, honey, in Philly, bitch. And you know I'm gonna come with the Philly. This is the Philly reporter right here. <laughs> Thank you. The yeah. Philly news right here. <laughs> I remember one time he had read me the film like, bitch, you need to be doing more with your motherfucking activists. Well, you know you did, but then guess what? Five years later, I stepped my pussy up. <laughs> she did. She did. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so yes, that. Okay, so let me tell y'all what she was talking about. So, <laughs> so a couple of years ago, when I was um, the LGBTQ editor um, for Philly Mag, I covered a lot of stuff in the neighborhood, racism, all these things. When I was covering that, there was a lot of racial discrimination in the neighborhood. There was law, all that work. We got the black and brown stripes on the flag. That was not Amber Hikes. That was the work of myself in the Black and Brown Workers Collective and other folks in the community. But, you know, she had to get credit all the time, still credit, whatever, whatever. So, anywho. At the time, there was this big moment where we was at this inflection point where it could have went in a direction of, okay, are people going to go back to these bars or are people going to, you know, continue to boycott and protest? And so at the time when Eye Candy was still open, as you know, Eye Candy had shut down a couple years ago. Won't he do it? Won't he do it? But at the time, Eye Candy was like on his deathbed, like the, 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 that there was a real divestment from that bar and they were on his deathbed. So they were trying to do any and everything they could to get those black and brown dollars back in there. So they started hiring like big folks, cutting checks to get like popular, you know, black, queer, trans talent. Like they had Singella, you know, the um, RuPaul's drag race person to come. But then they had this one night where they brought T.S. Madison and Christopher Milan. You know, Christopher Milan, that's the guy who was on Love and Hip Hop. He had that salacious magazine cover where he had his, his, his private parts and all that showing. This dude, okay, for people who know who that is, this is the guy, if you watch Love and Hip Hop Hollywood, he was on the show having, I guess he was like the first like black gay guy who had a storyline on the show. And he was talking to... Milan, it was like Milan, it was like it was it was Milan. That's his name, like Milan Christopher. His name is Milan Christopher, not Christopher Milan. Milan Christopher, and he was talking to this other guy who I guess was dealing with his balanced sexuality. But it was a whole storyline. I love hip hop, and so he was famous for that. And then Tess Madison has been famous just because she's been everywhere, and she clearly is still famous. I mean, she was on the song um, Cozy. She's the person that's saying black skin. Brown skin. That's her. That's her. She's the voice that's saying that on the album, of the Renaissance album. That's her. Iconic. So they were doing this event. And at the time, I was shocked. I was like, wait a minute. Why are y'all being pawns? Why are y'all being tokenized and used in this way? And I was very upset with, with the two of them. Now, Milan Christopher and I do not talk. He is trash. I, did, I don't really, I don't care for him. He's kind of irrelevant now, thank goodness. But T.S. Madison and I, at the time, 
I was very like, wow, why are you doing this? This bar is racist. This is this, this is this. You cannot come here. And she did. She, 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 she got her bag. But the thing I would say about her was is that she was not defensive. She didn't disrespect me. I got it. We had a conversation. We followed each other on Twitter. And I had gave her a real conversation like saying, I explained to her. I said, listen, you have this huge platform. You could do a lot more. And this isn't it, right? And she heard that. And she told me this weekend that she never forgot about what I said to her. And since then, she has been very more vocal and more of an activist and advocate for a lot of issues. And she speaks up and, you know, she she definitely took that to heart. And so I hadn't never met her in person. We always kind of follow each other on social media, but it was just great to, to see her and, and to have that experience. And who knows? You might be seeing me and her do some things, but she's she's great. And um, it was it was it was fun. It was it was it was it was interesting to come back and, you know, me and Sharon were just looking back at the old days and just being like, you remember this? You remember that? Um, but yeah, that was the event. The event it, it was a moment. It was definitely a moment. You, you, it felt different to return. It's been like over, it's been about five years. Um, because I got, when I leave, I'm a Libra. When I leave something, I, I never really look back. I don't ever spend a block for people. I spend a block for food, but I don't spend a block for people often. So it was, it was different. It was special. Um, but yeah, so now on to the stuff that's been going on. I feel like there's been so much going on. Republicans are throwing hands, you know, rep- Republicans are throwing hands, literally. Um, I'm like, what is going on? So McCarthy and, you know, the, the Teamsters, folks, GOP senators challenging the Teamsters to a fight. Like, what are Republicans doing? You know what I'm saying? You know, there's a first rule to fight club, it looks like. It seems like there's all types of fights going on between the people. You know, um, you know, there was this other situation going on. Rep 10 Butchett or whatever he calls himself. Um, you know, he there was a situation last Tuesday where he accused Kevin McCarthy of elbowing him in the kidney while the Senate Republican challenged a Senate Republican also challenged a union leader to a fight during a hearing. They are knucking and bucking and ready to fight over there in Congress. What is going on? It's reminding me of the good old days. Now, this guy right here, uh, Sean O'Brien, who is the international brother of Teamsters. He's the general president. Now, he spoke He spoke at this uh, Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearing. It was titled, Standing Up Against Corporate Greed, How Unions Are Improving the Lives of Working Families. Now, he experienced somebody trying to take it to the streets. Okay? Like, it's, is the GOP becoming a fight club? You know? It's a lot going on. You know, of course, the DNC chair called the Republicans fighting in Congress a clown show. That is Jamie Harrison, who says it's a clown show over there. But they want to fight. They want to fight. Okay, like Senator Mark Wayne Mullen. Okay, was trying to come to blows. A lot of people was using names. Folks calling folks clown and a fraud. He says, sir, this is a time. This is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consulting adults. We can finish it here, Mullen has said in the hearing room. And O'Brien said, okay, that's fine, perfect. 
And Ramona said, you want to do it now? Stand your butt up. Up. He said, I'm sorry. He said, you want to do it now? Stand your butt up then. <laughs> this white on white violence, people. Elbow in the kidney. See, let me tell y'all. So the white on white violence. It's the white on white violence for me. Now, see, if these were black elected officials, we would have been calling them thugs. But when they do it, it's a, you know, everybody want to make jokes. GOP fight club. <laughs> but if it was black people about to go to blows, y'all know it would have been a different conversation. Just keep this note. Can we just keep this? Can we just make sure that we bookmark these two incidents that happened last week and just keep them on the side? I just want to, I just want to make that known. I just want to make that known that we need to keep that on the side. Just saying. Other news. Y'all, it's finally happened. Tim Scott, the black Republican, the lone black candidate in the race for president, has officially suspended his campaign as in his bid to be the Republican nominee for 2024. OK, he's out. He's done. He's left the building. I think that's a good thing, right? Because we didn't need no more Tim Scott antics. After that last debate, where he was just kind of persona non grata, it's hard to envision him ever having a fighting chance from the jump. But it's become clear that the Republicans need to start. It, they, you know, we, we Mike Pence is out. Tim Scott is out. Who's next? I want to see Ron DeSantis go. I think it's time. Remember the momentum for Ron DeSantis? Remember how everybody was like, oh, Ron DeSantis is worse than Trump. Ooh, I'm worried about Ron, 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 Florida, Florida, Florida. And look at him. And there's no momentum there. I, I, I'm keeping an eye on Nikki Haley. But I have this weird inkling. I don't know. This is my suspicion. Could Trump pull a Biden and make Nikki Haley his VP? But would she, but see, this is the issue. But I keep going back and forth. People are like, well, she's been dragging Trump so much. I can't envision him doing it. Um, Do y'all remember a woman who ran for president that dragged her soon-to-be executive leader to filth in a way that went viral? Oh, wasn't that Kamala, Senator at the time, Kamala Harris? Kamala Harris, who would later become the VP when she said, that little girl was me when she described Biden as being pretty much a segregationist. I just think that's interesting that that happened. You don't think that Nikki's playing the same game? I wonder if that's where the energy's going. Nikki in the VP role. She's playing a fierce competition and then she might work with Trump and B. Listen, they've already kind of worked before. She supported him in the past. It wouldn't be too far-fetched. Would that be the GOP compromise? A Trump as the candidate and Nikki, right, to counter the diversity conversations. Because Nikki Haley is a woman of color. She might deny it, but she is. I knew that race was going to play a role with the GOP. I didn't know who it would be. I mean, Trump won't get Tim Scott. Is Tim Scott maybe the one? Hmm. 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 Stay woke. George Santos. He's become a reoccurring character on my show. 
I used to talk about Trump, but, you know, Trump is a, a person that we need to keep an eye on this election cycle. But George Santos, man, I, the most interesting guy, I mean, in Congress. I mean, fascinating. He's a buffoon. And everybody wants him out. Um, the House Ethics Chairman has introduced a resolution to expel George Santos from Congress. I think it's time, y'all. There was a damning report on its investigation to Santos. People were saying lawmakers are expected to address the resolution at the end of the month once they return from Thanksgiving holiday. You know, he dodged it. He's, he has survived previous attempts, according to CNN. He has survived many attempts to oust him. And I, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but there is growing momentum. After this report. Now, let's talk about this report, okay? Botox, fake loans, he's been lying. This ethics, this House ethics investigation of George Santos is nothing to sneeze on, okay? That 56-page report talked about his mess from the beginning. And now it's got people wanting to expel him. He's a freshman Republican. His entire two years in Congress, nearly two years in Congress, has just been engulfed in controversy and scandal. Okay, the report has showed that he used campaign funds for personal travel and cosmetics. He's been doing Botox. People thought he was sludging. Now, let me say this real quick, because y'all, they said he was slugging, which is this technique where you put a lot of Vaseline in your face. I don't do this shit. I just do oil cleansing. But he does. They were saying he was slugging where he was doing a lot of Vaseline on his face. And that's what. Nah, child. Look, a, a, a girl knows. Okay, a doll knows skincare. Okay, I could be an exorcist in my previous life. Okay, that was not no goddamn slugging. Now I don't slug myself, but look it up. It's this. It is an interesting skin process. I just don't like it for my skin, but people are into slugging. They said it was slugging. That's why his skin was looking the way it was. Child, it was Botox. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. And why is he doing Botox? He is not that that old. I, I mean. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. How old is George Santos? He is 35 years old. Child. He's a millennial. He's 35. 35 years old. And he's already doing Botox. Baby. Girl. So, some of the other stuff he did, I mean, he was spending bank. He spent two, he spent $2,200 at resorts in Atlantic City talking about, um, it was it was dated as NRCC candidate. He spent $1,400 at a virtual skin spa in Jericho, New York. He spent $225 at City MD in Huntington, New York. He spent $1,500 on the campaign debit card that was made for Mirza Aesthetics, which was not reported on the FC, FEC form, and it was noted as buy, Botox and expense sheets. He spent $1,400 at a virtual skin spa, um, also for Botox. He also had an unreported PayPal payment of $1,000 to an extension with a spa in New York. He spent $4,100 at um, Hermes. He spent smaller purchases on OnlyFans, Sephora, Mills, and Parking. He's done a long list of lies. He, you know, his report said at least three housing eviction lawsuits were filed against him and his family, um, which is wild. Um, multiple civil judgments filed against him for owing thousands of dollars to creditors. Um, he re he reimbursed for personal loans he didn't make. He was reimbursed for post personal loans he did not make. There's also uh, an ethics panel concludes sexual harassment allegation against him was not substantiated. So there was some allegations of sexual harassment. They said there was not enough substantial evidence to support a sexual harassment allegation that was brought against him. So. That was that apparently 
there was a claim that he may have been involved in sexual misconduct. And this was brought by individuals seeking employment in his congressional office uh, as a staff assistant. Um, but the report said that there was not substantial reason to believe that Representative, Representative Santos sexually harassed or discriminated against this witness, 10, a prospective employee. So that was one thing. The panel um, navigated the, the, the um, Department of Justice overlapping criminal probe. So this is going like he still has pled not guilty to 23 federal crimes. Okay. And some of that stuff the panel looked into, like allegedly misusing campaign funds and lying on House financial disclosures. To be honest, this ethics investigation is going to fuel the DOJ's investigation into him. This man could be spending some serious time behind bars. The consequences are serious. This is serious. Just putting it out there. So in Philly, in Philly, I wrote a piece, okay, about customers. Um, and it's been a lot. This this op-ed I wrote for Eater Philly, which was one of the most read on the site this past week. Um, I wrote a piece called Restaurant Recent Philly Restaurant Closings are a sign that diners must step it up. Now, if I could give an award to how many people, hundreds of people that read that headline, didn't read my piece, did not read my editorial and just completely judged me based off of the headline, I would be rich. But the headline is recent Philly restaurant closing. There are a sign that diners must step it up. Support for hometown culinary talent can't be fleeting. It must be sustained consistently. Now, this is interesting. When I wrote this piece, I never thought that this would be something that would garner so much hate and reactions from readers. Now, to be clear, restaurant folks have been loving the piece, but some people in the that are, I guess, consumers thought that the piece was elitist, thought that, you know, it was insensitive and thought that, you know, I was ignoring the larger issues. But then I was like, well, where did I not address those issues? And then I realized, oh, they didn't actually read the piece. They just have an opinion about my opinion. And I was like, oh, we are in the era where I call it the shade room era, where no one actually reads stories. The headlines are the stories and people just will, will just make an entire opinion based on the headline versus actual stories themselves. Interesting. So I, <laughs> let me just say this. Let me tell you where, where I come from with the piece. And, 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 you know, here we are. There's been a lot of restaurant closings in Philly, y'all. Like there's been a lot of grand openings, but there's been some grand closings. Okay. Um, Eva, which was the city's first independent unionized, unionized restaurant, shut its doors 11 months after they joined Local 80. Korshak Bagels, Little Pop Shop, Reckley's Ice Cream, which broke my heart. Those ice cream bars are everything. Relish, The Lucky Well, The Lunar Inn, Abe Fisher, Merkaz, Wishbone and City Tap House in University City. They're all gone, right? They're all gone. And, you know, this is... This is serious. Like a lot of these restaurants are closing and some of them are not. Let me be clear. A lot of them are not. You know, there's a lot of reasons why this is happening. OK, there's a lack of business. There's staff burnout. There's rising operational costs and there's increased, you know, competition. And that's just the reality of the business. There's a lot of reasons why this is happening. And I addressed that in my piece. However, 
one of the things that always kind of annoyed me was when I used to see, you know, diners at these restaurants um, complain and say things like, or, or get sad and say, what happened? And where did it go? And I missed this restaurant. And I'm just like, well, where have you been? In the words of Rihanna, in the lyrics of Rihanna, where have you been? Okay. Where have you been all this time? Not all my life, all this time, right? That's what we're doing here. Where, where, where were you? And so I wrote this piece from the place of like, there are things like in this, in this restaurant economy space, there are things that we can do as diners to support restaurants. And while people were saying that I was being classist and a snob, people say I'm a socialite. They say, you know, oh, you go to all these restaurants, you can't relate. I always say, shut up, shut up, shut up. Because you don't read. And if you don't read, you can't talk to me. I, I want to talk to readers, folks that read. If you're going to criticize me, read my shit. If you're going to criticize my work, read it and get what I'm saying. So this is the questions I posed to people who are trying to figure out how they can support. Ask yourself these questions. And these are questions I ask myself inward, right? Am I recommending them to others to try? Do I put them on the list of places for my company to host a happy hour holiday party? Do I give them a shout out and follow them on social media? Do I support their special events and tastings? Do I leave a thoughtful review online? Do I tip well? Do I explore their catering options for birthdays, weddings, showers, and more? Do I buy gift cards to spread the joy I have there with someone else? That's real. I asked one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight questions. And many of those questions did not actually require the spread of commerce. So, you know, you can call me the capitalist and all those things and say what you want to say, misguided. I've been said a lot of things by white progressives who don't know the fucking nuances of why I can't be that crazy capitalist that you want to project on. And why a lot of restaurants don't fit that description, to be honest. It's, it's, it, I, I got something to say about that. Let me, let me hold that because I want to say this. There are ways to support restaurants and show up for restaurants without going physically there. If you can't afford to go to a restaurant every week, I get it in this economy, right? But if there are restaurants that you love, that you want to see thrive, we all got social media platforms. The way that y'all, some of these people got in those comments and wanted to rip the article apart, baby, you could have been following your favorite restaurant and sharing them on your story. The way that y'all said, oh, some of these people were like, oh, I didn't like this piece. You promote the article. You got it more views. You made the most read article on the entire Eater site Period. Not just the Eater Philly. I'm talking the entire Eater site, period. Imagine if you would have used that energy to promote those restaurants. Congratulations. You played yourself. Because you know what's funny? Is that I use my platform to promote restaurants this entire time. But what did you do with your time? You spent that time hate reading my piece and making sure thousands of other people hate read the piece too. Congratulations. Who won? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, if you don't like it, don't read it. There's a lot of things I don't like, I just don't read it. And you know what? I don't actually promote it either. 
Just saying. We have options, people. We do. But I want to bring up something else that I want to address. Is that there's been all these conversations about capitalism and capitalists and labor this and labor that. And I hear all of it, right? But I think one of the things that is misguided about some of these people making these arguments is that you all act like a lot of these small local restaurants are big, huge capitalist corporate machines. These restaurant owners are doing the best they can. Everybody is in the in this field is is struggling in their own right. I do support. You know, it's it's a it's, it's so much hypocrisy. I'm about to I'm about to tell y'all what's so hypocritical about some of the folks that are talking this this talk about restaurants and labor and equity and things. There's hypocrisy, and I want you to make it make sense because I'm about to make this full fucking circle. Okay, let's go. So the critique I hear from a lot of people on social media, some people about the, the restaurant stuff, is that they say, "Oh, workers need to get paid more," you know, fair wages and all that, and I agree. Workers deserve to be paid more, right? They say we need to have a better business model and infrastructure and that, you know, these restaurant owners, these greedy restaurant owners. If you know the restaurant business, you know that profits do not turn ginormously. Now, unless you are a part of a major chain, right? Like there is a steak 48 across the country, lock bars galore, right? Every restaurant is not a fucking McDonald's or a fucking Starbucks. So if you saw Starbucks, people unionizing in Starbucks, right? Yeah, because there's a big old fucking chain with billions of dollars attached. Your little mom and pop shop restaurant is not that place. So when people like want to unionize these restaurants that already are struggling, you're not going to, it's not going to work. I don't think that a lot of restaurants, small mom and pop restaurants can work under a unionized way. I don't personally believe that. I have not seen success. Think about it. Milk and Honey in West Philly, they tried to do unionizing efforts and the restaurant just got shut the fuck down. You look at V Street, right? Rich Land on them own various restaurants. They tried to unionize there. That shit collapsed. Korshak Bagels, they tried to do unionizing stuff and then that fucking fell apart. Then you got Evie, which was the one that did it right. But 11 months later, it collapsed. It can't work because the way the restaurant system works and the way that the margins don't work, there's no way to do it on a small scale like that. And as somebody, right, who knows the restaurant industry, who's been in it, whose husband's been in this scene, let's keep it 100. Uh, the way the current restaurant model is set up, the restaurants that are small mom and pop serving jobs, they're not built in a way to create permanent careers. There are, there are certain jobs in the economy that I personally believe are what I call transition work. You're there for a period of time to get on your feet. You make a salary. You make, you make some money, right? You, you do what you do. And then you transition to somewhere else. A lot of these restaurants are not in the space to give people full-time jobs. And listen, I hear the complaints. I get it. But let's be realistic and practical about where we currently are right now rather than simply washing it up and acting like there's this major capitalism and this greed. It's, it's not like that. And if you ain't sitting down talking to different restaurant owners and actually look at the business model, you will understand that. Like if you really believe that there could be tons of small niche coffee shops that are going to give people full careers, it's not going to happen. 
It's not. It's not built like that. The bar scene was never built like that. It was built off of temporary jobs, couple of hours. And to be real, we know that there are people who rightfully so work at those places and treat it that way. You have actors, right, who are actors. They're, 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 we call them, people call them starving artists, but they're actors that come and perform. They work on Broadway in between jobs. They use bartending as a way to help support themselves. I wish in a perfect idealistic world, everybody could get a fair, livable job and wage. But the way the system is set up currently, that's not realistic. It's not. And then let me tell you what the criticism I have with these progressives that critique. If we know that the restaurant owner alone can't do it, because they don't have the resources. If we know that the, that the diners can only do so much, right, respectfully, then who needs to do it? The government? Okay. So when city council, Isaiah Thomas, city council member at large, Isaiah Thomas, and Catherine Grimmer Richardson proposed, okay, proposed to support businesses. You all said progressives, they're supporting the business economy. What about the schools? What about this? We can't support them. Well, who in the fuck is supposed to get the money? I just want to understand. It frustrates me. You all said that when they wanted to give money to businesses, restaurants, black-owned restaurants that need to support, you criticized those elected officials and said, oh, they're supporting big fucking business. How many, how much big fucking business in Philadelphia? How many Fortune 500 companies do we have in Philadelphia? How many? Less than your, your fingers on both of your hands. Okay? It's not that many. You all love to talk about big companies. I, I'm sorry. A restaurant, a mom and pop restaurant is not big fucking business. Everybody's not some gross capitalist. Owning a business don't make you this gross capitalist. Being a business owner is nothing wrong. It's no shame to owning a business and giving people fucking jobs. And so there are some people out here who are living on a fucking planet that I don't know. And as somebody who's a pragmatic progressive, this is not the work. This is not the fucking work. It's not. This is not what I signed up for. And I'm not a Republican and I'm not a conservative and I'm definitely not a moderate, but I'm somebody who is sitting around and having conversations and not being a fucking slacktivist on Twitter. Do I use Twitter? Yes, but I tweet and I fucking meet. And some of y'all need to do more of the latter than the fucking former. We tweet and we meet over here. As a black queer person, I have to do both. I can't sit around and just talk about what things should be. And you know what's so funny? A lot of the people that's anti this and anti that, what do your parents fucking do for a living? Let's talk about it. Let's fucking talk about it. What zip code do you live in? And who supports you when you get around town, want to go to all these goddamn, you know, co-ops and shit? Who supports you? How do you make your money? And who, what trust fund are you a part of? And what person is kept keeping you? And what donors support your fucking movement? Because somebody has to get the fuck up and do the work. Somebody's got to put the money in the system. Be real. Be real. Because that's the real talk that no one wants to say. 
they criticized that legislation because they were so obsessed with Comcast getting a tax write-off that they didn't realize that some of them tax cuts were actually going to help the restaurants that desperately need the money that needs to support what they need to support. You hate the government, but you want the government to do more. Listen, there are a group of people that are never going to want anything more than to just basically complain. But interesting enough, the folks that are trying to get to the bottom of this shit and wrestle this shit, the ones who actually can't afford to see things collapse, because what happens to collapse? See, you all come to these communities and gentrify them and you come here and, and you take over and you have your little shit. And then when shit falls, you leave. What about the people that still got to stay there? They can't afford to leave. We got to get to a point where we can go back to having conversations and having dialogue to move the fucking needle forward. We're not in a position to throw our hands up, turn our backs, and whine. That's all. So, speaking of things, this weekend, uh, the story came out. That story I've been telling y'all about that was coming, it's come. I did a ride along, and my 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 good friend Joe said, you know, was not on my twenty twenty three bingo card. Neither was it on mine. I did a ride along with the interim police commissioner John um, Stanford. Um, this next the next episode of Ernestine Speaking, okay, which will be next week, we will be. I believe hearing who the next Philadelphia police commissioner will be. It will be interesting to see who it's going to be. I hear that John Stanford is in the running, but I've also heard names like Kevin Bethel. We'll see who it's going to be. If I had my personal pick, I would choose Stanford over Bethel. If I had to pick the lesser of evils, because law enforcement isn't my forte to, you know. But I did a ride along with John Stanford um, on October 25th. Um, it required me. First of all, let me tell you what a ride along is. A ride along is when you, when a civilian rides in a, a, a it could be a marked car, or unmarked car with law enforcement. You drive around. Normally, you'll drive around an area where there's a high amount of crime to just see how police patrol or to get an understanding of what it's like to be in their shoes. So I was offered the opportunity to do this a couple of times. I had said no. One, because you know my history with law enforcement and how I feel about the police. But I think at the third time I was asked, I took some time. I had seen a lot of the stuff that Stanford was doing. Um... And I told myself, is, is this Ernest the person saying no? Or as a journalist, why I should be saying yes? You know, my mind was telling me no, but my body was telling me yes. I, 
There's a time in journalism, and I think about what I do, and it, and this is where my head's been lately, that too often we complain about how police are covered, how crime is covered, how we discuss these issues in the public eye. And we complain and we say, oh, Steve Keeley, you know, he's interviewing this and this and this and his journalism is terrible and he's not accurately expressing the issues in the community. And I think to myself, well, who's challenging Steve Keeley? Who's the alternative? Because this is an issue. Crime is an issue in Philadelphia. We can't ignore the issue, right? Well, 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 we can't just always just keep being like, fuck Steve Keeley. I mean, you know, respectfully. Then, then who do we, who do we, then, then what is the alternative? Then who do we read and, and, and whatnot? You know, there's Mensa Dean, for better or for worse. But like, there's got to be a different voice. And so when I thought about that ride-along offer, I said to myself, if not me, then who? And I looked at my career and I looked at how I've taken different directions. I love the fun of not being, of being unpredictable. I love that people can't ever track my next moves. People try, have tried it forever. And then I pivot and I mix it up and I go in a different direction. And, and that is what's been missing in local journalism is people getting out of their comfort zones, doing something different. It's so easy to put on a blonde wig and travel around the country and, you know, put on the luxurious look and flex and flaunt. I mean, that's easy to do. But you know what's not easy to do? Is the work, <laughs> the actual work. The work of putting yourself in situations of discomfort to reveal and to inform the public. And I was, when I thought about it that way, I was like, yeah. Yeah, because it's so easy, right? It's so easy, it's so easy to say no, and rightfully so, right? Like I don't encourage people to go on a ride along if they don't want to, it's, it was, it, it could be, it was triggering. You all saw my picture. I wasn't scared, but I definitely was not jolly. It was, you know, my face was serious as fuck because it was very serious. Like you're putting on a bulletproof vest you're driving in one of the most, I don't want to use the word dangerous. I think the word to use is an area where there's an increased amount of crime, gunshots. You don't know how that's going to play out. But there's a part of me that, that felt like, you know, these people will say, look, we tried. He's biased. He can't see the other side. He He's too scared. He too... And I was like, but I'm not scared of y'all. But I'm not scared of y'all. I'm not scared to talk to the police. Like, I'm not scared to interview. I got to do this. I got to get outside of myself to do this because this is an important moment in our city. We're going to be, we, we've, we're going to, 
inaugurate and, you know, and the, the next mayor of the city is going to be sworn in. We're going to have a brand new police commissioner. We're going to have a very different city council. This is the moment. This is the moment. Eight years ago, under the Kennedy administration, I would have never been given the opportunity to do this type of work. I've waited my entire career to get to this point where I can now challenge these elected officials, these important city leaders. Like, this is the moment. There's been so much mediocrity. Who am I to say no? Because if I say no, the mediocrity continues. Somebody else gets in that ride along, does what some of these people are accusing me of, propaganda, which I would really tell people again, did you really read the piece? Because if you did, it's the furthest from propaganda I think I've seen any type of story about the police than it actually involved the police. It's not propaganda. I know propaganda. I know my intentions. And I think it's so annoying because I'm starting to see progressives act, some of these progressives, some of them, act like the very annoying contrarian moderates that they try not to be. Like you guys are becoming, some of them are becoming the same types of people that we used to say we didn't want. You know, like how folks like moderates and, and, and conservatives would be like, Oh, you know, Black Lives Matter. What about all lives matter? They, they would just jump to they would just jump to conclusions. They didn't read anything. They made assumptions. I'm starting to see similar traits on the other side. Like people are just jumping and like, like y'all not even reading. Like we just we just labeling everything. And I mean, granted, I get the frustrations with law enforcement, clearly. But it's just interesting that people are just making leaps. They're not even reading, they don't even care. They look stupid. They just see a cop car. They go, well, and I know there's some trigger there. I'm not trivializing that aspect. But what is interesting is that if we're going to have these serious conversations, then come prepare and come mature. Just saying. But I did the ride along. And I and I did it because I don't want anybody to pigeonhole my work. I don't want anybody to assume any of my positions. I don't want anybody to, 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 reduce my advocacy and my work, period, 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 just saying. So the ride along was interesting. John Stanford is um, a Philly guy, true and true, born and raised. He's 44 years old. He's a black man. He's a father. He's a husband. Um, he has been in the force for over 20 years. Um, he wants the job. He wants the job. He wants to be the next permanent Philadelphia police commissioner. And we're going to find out very soon because um, Mayor-elect Sheryl Parker has announced that she's going to announce the next police commissioner um, before Thanksgiving. So we're going to find out very, very soon. We're days away of finding out. Um, I don't know who's going to get it, um, but it's going to be interesting to watch. I mean... I think he I, I think he's ready, you know, um, you know, there's no such thing as an ideal police commissioner, but we got to be real that there are some that are worse than others on the scale of bullshit. Right. Uh, because let's be real. I don't think he's a Frank Rizzo. But he could probably be in the likes of some like a Ramsey, I could see. Um, but we're going to see who's going to be. I hear about Kevin Bethel. 
Personally, I'm not crazy about Kevin Bethel because for starters, he needs to live in Philadelphia County. He does not live in Philadelphia County anymore. His work with, as the police chief for the Philadelphia School District was not that good, in my opinion. I don't, I don't really feel like he made much of an impact, in my opinion. Um, I know for a fact from close sources that he was offered this position by the Kenny administration, turned it down for various reasons. So don't be surprised why I'm cynical about you know, what he would be doing with the role. Um, you know, I think there's many options we have on the table. And honestly, I think Stanford's the guy, in my opinion. You know, I'm not her. Um, she's getting intel that's different. You know, sources tell me that Richard Ross and um, Ramsey, um, both of them were former um, police commissioners for Philly, are part of this process um, as part of, a part of the search committee, which is an uncommon thing. Um, but you know, we'll see. You know, we'll we'll see. So now on to homophobia in Hollywood. You know, there's just been this interesting, you know, or disgusting commonality I see happen in our society where. There's always that rumor and that, you know, interest in, you know, gotcha moments or gaydar moments where we see the outing of certain celebrities over and over again. And quite frankly, y'all, it's it's exhausting um, as a black queer person to see it, you know. So it's been a lot of it these past couple of days. You know, I mean, Usher's situation with Kiki Palmer's mom, Miss Sharon. So... Um, you might have heard this clearly, but the saga between Kiki Palmer, her baby daddy, Darius Jackson, I'm a little over it now. Um, but I'm, of course, um, one team Kiki, believe in Kiki, believe Kiki, believe Kiki should have that separation. You know, I, I don't for five seconds think that Darius Jackson is the man that he's trying to portray himself in the public. I think there's something going on there and it, it doesn't look good for him. But there was a recording that leaked by um, that, that showed an argument largely between Kiki Palmer's mother and him. And in that conversation, um, Kiki's mother is very angry and very frustrated with him, but she goes into, you know, a side of the conversation that just wasn't good. Right. And I guess in the name of trying to defend her daughter and trying to, I guess, squash any suggestions or rumors that Usher and her had a thing because, you know, Darius was just upset about the outfit she wore to that concert during Usher's residency. Kiki's mother goes on to accuse Usher and allege that he's gay and that he, you know, sleeps with men. And she just goes into this, this tirade about it. And I got to say, it was very, un, un, uh, you know, disheartening to hear. Um, it just wasn't cool. And it was just downright homophobic. And I'm just personally annoyed and over the fact that people feel like they have to throw folks under the bus in order to get, you know, to make a point. And I just don't think that's cool. Like, I don't feel like you have to throw other folks or, or attempt to, right, um, in the name of trying to 
defend something else. Because let's be clear, a man who is abusive, a man that is possessive, a man that is controlling, don't make these decisions about what the true true reality of anyone's sexuality is, another man's presence. It's about what they can't control. Like whether Usher is gay or not, whether it was anything of that nature had nothing to do with the insecurities of Darius being possessive. I will tell you that as somebody who is an attractive gay man, if I do say so myself, that I have seen girls that I'm cool with have dudes that feel some type of way about the way that I show love to their girlfriend or love interest or whatever. And listen, I have no interest, but the way that I might be making they lady feel, they might feel some type of way. There was a couple of girls that I'm not, I don't, I don't, you know, deal with anymore that they had boyfriends or dudes that was into them that was hella jealous of the kind of relationship and bond me and their girlfriend had. And it had nothing to do with the fact that I was, you know, into women or not. It was just the mere fact that they did not like that there was a male figure that was showing a level of support and encouragement to their girl in a way that they felt like they couldn't. So, Miss Sharon, with all due respect, Darius doesn't care about whether or not Usher is or isn't gay. It's not your place to make an assumption about what Usher's sexuality is, what you heard. It's not your place to do that. And to be quite honest, if we really want to have conversations about abusers, it's never about any of those things that drive someone to, to stop doing what they're doing or feel some type of way. It's about the fact that however that individual is making their girl feel, that they, they feel like they can't do, that's where the jealousy lies. So look, whether Usher sleeps with men or not, or whatever that is, that is irrelevant because at the end of the day, the way that Usher made Kiki feel that night on that stage is what Darius Dalton clearly fails not to be able to do in his relationship. And that was what was driving the anger and the need for him to publicly try to slut shame her. So when people do the whole, oh, you know, he's gay, I got gay friends and blah, 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 and da, 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 da. Listen, listen, listen. It ain't okay, right? It's never been about that. Men, men who are possessive and abusive, I will tell you, do not care whether the man is gay or straight or whatever. It is about the personal connection, the lack of control that they feel in situations and environments. Okay, and and it don't even have to be with someone of the of the opposite sex. It, it could be situations in which they just feel like family or other people could be influencing that person to leave the relationship. So. Usher's sexual orientation has nothing to do with the conversation. And for you to talk about it adversely in, a, in, a, in an adversarial way, I just, that didn't sit well with me. So, but that has nothing to do with Kiki, right? Kiki has family. Everybody has family members that embarrass them in their fights or their advocacy or their or their, their plight, right? It's, you know, and so I, I, you know, I don't fault Kiki. I don't think it's her fault. But I do think conversation just needs to be had. Like, it's embarrassing, right? Like, it doesn't feel good to see somebody's information that way get leaked. And it also hinders or 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 distracts from the work. So we're people are spending more time talking about the Usher shit 
But if you listen to the rest, uh, which which was which was wrong because people love Usher, I love Usher. But what was wrong to me was the fact that the rest of the audio, we're not even realizing that if we're supposed to believe what Miss Sharon says about Usher, then are we to believe the other things that Miss Sharon said in that call, which talked about how you know, hey, Darius did some that there was forewarnings that Darius was allegedly abusive and had problems and his family was messed up and there was issues and signs prior to the incident that took place a, a couple of weeks ago. Like that was very telling. And the fact that Darius didn't really push back at all of the things that she was saying made me realize, wow, these problems were persistent and there were warnings for a while. So, you know, if we're to believe, you know, we got to be mindful, right? We can't say that Miss Sharon outed Usher because to say that is to just automatically believe that Sharon knows what she was saying or was she just repeating Hollywood gossip, which there's always been gay rumors around Usher. Like there's always been those rumors. And at some point you just got to go enough, right? And that brings me to the next person, right? Because it just seems like Libras can't get a break. Like Libras be chilling and minding their business and somebody fucks with them. You sit there, Libras be minding their business and we be like, why am I in it? They love to put our name in a conversation. I just, I just can't. It's like always, like Usher can't get a break. It just seems like week after week, somebody want to connect Usher to something that ain't got nothing to do with him. Um, Will Smith, right? Like Will Smith can't catch a goddamn break. My goodness. Between his wife's book, between... Just the consistent persistence of other people. Like, Will Smith don't hurt nobody except, you know, that one time with Chris Rock, which I felt like was warranted. He don't bother nobody. And so to see Will Smith once again in some unnecessary bullshit. So a former guy who used to work for him, work with him years ago, made this horrible allegation on the Tasha K show, which let me just start by saying, why is Tasha K still out here acting like she hasn't been sued for defamation and slander and all these things. Like she don't owe Cardi B millions of dollars. That why is she still talking and why is she still creating a, a forum that facilitates hate and gossip and mess towards people that she don't fucking know? Like I just don't understand her. And I don't understand why people go on her show still as if this woman is not the, the magnet for a lawsuit. Again, fucking with other Libras. Cardi B, a Libra. Like, can people leave Libras alone? Seriously, can people leave Libras alone? Like, Cardi B was minding her business, and then Tasha K went to sip and make false allegations, rumors about her, call her prostitute, all that, and, and look, a Libra, listen, a Libra gonna get their lick back on principle. She sued Tasha K, knows Tasha K don't have the money to pay it, but she did it to shut her up and let her know, don't fuck with me on principle. And, and at the end of the day, I've heard Jada Pinkett Smith say to TMZ reporters that she's planning to sue for the for the for the misinformation that's been said about Will. So this guy accused Will Smith of having a sexual relationship on the low with um actor Dwayne Martin. Now there's been several in the window about Dwayne Martin and Will Smith for a long time. It's not news, but the fact that someone close to Will used to be close to Will um is now saying it is bringing some level of validity to the public in a way that once again, Will has to deal with these gay rumors that he denies. And so it's like at some point, I'm sick of it as a gay person, as a queer person, because, you know, when I think about Usher and, and Will Smith, both 
you know, talented, successful Libras in their own right. You know, Will has a Grammy and Oscar. Usher has Grammys and number one hits. I mean, these are two, you know, men who I feel like are comfortable within their skin and their sexuality. I just don't understand why, why they, I don't, I don't find them to be a problem when it comes in that department. I just don't understand why we're so fixated on trying to make them something that they don't subscribe to. And here's the thing. If they are, why do we fucking care? I don't get straight people sometimes. Y'all be the main one saying, oh, I'm not about this gay life. And, you know, people try to force their sexuality not at all on me. And I'm not like this and this. But then you all turn around and, and, and keep stirring up, quote unquote, the gay shit. So I just don't know where y'all stand on this. Like, make up your mind. You know, do you, are you with it or are you not? Like, I'm just saying, like, the obsession. And specifically with cishet men, like, my whole thing is, I'm on this whole mind your dick. Like, what is it with cishet men, the obsession with wanting to regulate everybody's business? You want to control women's bodies. You want to define masculinity and how men should express their masculinity. You want to tell women what to do with their vaginas and their body and their face and their hair. You want to control everybody around your sexuality. You want to tell trans people, transgender people, how they should you know, do sports and how they should be and what they should do. Like you want to control everybody's fucking body but your own. You can't control your dick. You can't control your erections. You can't control your ability not to rape women. You can't control your ability not to not sexually harass folks you 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 could do every your shit could be out of control but everybody else a man gonna be a man you say right some of these excuses you want to control everybody else's body and how they are in their autonomy but somehow you can't control yours make it make sense mind your dick that's what I'm going to start telling straight men. Like, I'm tired of these debates and these conversations about gay people and is it natural, is it not natural? Why does it fucking matter? Why do you care? Mind your dick. Because that's not checked. The main men that I know that have so much to say about everybody else's body can't control their erections, can't control their dicks, can't control what they do with it, okay? Just saying. It's interesting that the ones who got the most to say be the ones out of control. Find me a, a respectful, mild-mannered, cishet man that cares about women's bodies and what gay people are doing and what transgender people are doing and don't have any issues amongst themselves. Find me that man. I don't know that man. The men, the cishet men that I've, I've met that have so much to say about what women do with their bodies, that got so much to say about transgender people, got so much to say about sexual or, or orientation, are the main ones who find themselves consistently harassing and, you know, disrespecting women in their personal lives. A hit dog will holler. Always. Always. And so, you know, I, I think that in these times when I see these allegations, I'm often reminded of how cishet people really do feel about gay people. I recognize why people have a hard time coming out. When I look at the 10 years, you know, many years ago when I was at Penn, this was 2010, we, we you know, a liberal, a, a quote unquote liberal arts college where there's progressives and yada, yada, yada. You know, I think about my friends who were on that journey with me, Nina and Sam and Amanda and Jessica and them. And, and, and the way that cishet men in our community, in our spaces treated me and how they talked about me and 
how they were fixated on my sexual orientation, even when I was not. How many times, you know, I would shoot to go to be a part of organizations and clubs and they'll say things. And again, this is in 20, this is the 2010s, y'all. So this ain't that long ago. These people say things like, oh, he's really smart and he's cool, but you know, I don't know because he's gay. It was like my sexual orientation was treated as a hindrance in a way. Like everything was right except that. I don't know. And and how some of these guys, straight guys, would act funny around me and 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 and, and really other me, you know, because I was out, right? And they had people they knew. They knew certain people in in our school that were potentially or they what they would call sus. Right. And, and they knew. But as long as you didn't say it out loud, you couldn't be who you were out loud. Folks can gossip about it and rumor about it. But if you was actually out, there was a problem. And I came into the school swinging. I came into the school on day one gay. Like I didn't hide my sexual orientation. You know, I had did that. Somewhat in college, in my earlier parts of my college year, I mean, my I'm sorry, in high school, in my earlier high school years, I had did that. And then eventually I, I came out on campus um, in, in high school. And then when I went to college, I, I did not hold back to my classmates and people. I was myself. I came to Philadelphia to be my true self. And it was not easy socially. Like, you know, in some aspects, you know, I was campus wide. But amongst black students that I that I went to that I went to school with, my social experiences were, were very complicated because some of the same guys that would outwardly call me a faggot out loud were some of the same guys that was in my DMs and like, you know, trying to have a thing. Um, I watched this film Rustin, and I think people should watch it. We're going to talk more about the Netflix film Rustin, but 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 my goodness, I could relate to that situation. If you've seen the film, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't seen it, you got to see it. I'm going to talk more about it in a, in a couple of minutes. But I really felt that connection that Bayard Rustin dealt with. Like you have these men who are so; these are people that are that are that that. I think about some of them now. They're senior VPs and they're at, you know, consulting firms and they're lawyers now. They're teachers and professors and they're running for office and they're, they're doing all these things. They got some of them got wives now. And it's it's interesting because all of that that homophobia that that I saw and knew and experienced, and some of them who were closeted because of that hate, right? They now are out here in the world as, you know, Ivy League grads that are supposed to be, you know, future leaders, but they hold a lot of self-hate and some of them bigotry that makes me wonder, you know? And so when people think about like, oh, how did Donald Trump come from Penn and how did, you know, th th that's where they are, a lot of them, you know? <laughs> they, listen, these, these Ivy League institutions, as you can see in the news lately, are not necessarily molding people that are socially conscious and woke and all those things. That's why I laugh when Republicans like Ted Cruz and them say that because I'm like, but Ted Cruz, my dear, didn't you go to Harvard Law School? Like the Bush, didn't the Bushes go come come from Yale? Like a lot of your faves, like you know, oh, I don't know, Ron DeSantis went to Harvard Law School. Did you know that? Like all these people went to Ivy League schools that are conservatives, and so it's interesting how they play. Like, oh, there's this liberal obsession is liberal culture of like you know wokeism being in these causes but like the gag is 
there is also a, a long historical strand of deep-seated bigotry that's also come out of here that have found itself in the Supreme Courts. But I digress. What do I know? You know, Brett Kavanaugh came from an Ivy League school. Like, come on. Like, he, you know, he went to Yale. Why are we acting like all these, like all the people that come out of these places become the most outstanding gentlemen? There are a couple of barbaric pigs as well. Like, a couple, a lot of them. So it's very interesting. You know, there are men that have raped women on campus and have gone off to have careers and jobs. You know, it's interesting seeing some of these black men that were in fraternities that did not allow me to enter. You know, I, I, I'm in a position now that I can say a couple of things. When I was in college, I wanted to be an alpha. And this boy, which will go unnamed, literally said out loud who, you know, oh, there'll be no faggot on my line. But this is a man who literally sexually harassed girls on campus, always pulled his dick out to knock on the fucking door of, you know, dorm, you know, dorm rooms of girls and, you know, stayed around as a creep and was always a creep. And this guy has got a PhD in education and now he's, you know, out here acting like he's some advocate for equity. And I'm just like, oh, but you're a fucking idiot. But, you know, listen. It's, 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 it's those things that I remember. And I remember that a lot of the men that was a part of that fraternity were closeted until, oh, until they graduated. And then they got their degrees and then they decided to then come out. And these were the same people that, while I was in school, hitting me up in my DMs trying to see what's good. Or actually trying to, you know, stop me from being a part of other organizations. And it was not because I wasn't talented enough or I didn't know the shit, I wasn't good enough, whatever the case is. It was really because they had the fear that my presence in those spaces would would put pressure on them to, you know, it made them uncomfortable. Or the reality is they just was jealous because here I was having black queer joy that they could not contain. And they wanted to justify while they were in the closet. So they wanted to make it not fun or cool to be out. But in spite of all of that, I persisted nonetheless. And here we are over 10 years later. And, you know, look, my wedding got covered in New York Times. And some of them are still on the apps. Just bless, bless their heart. So this leads me to my Ask Ernest question, which... um you all asked me, um, how do I feel about outing folks? Like the way, given the light of what happened to Will and Usher this week, how do I feel about outing folks? And, and my take has always been consistent. And I'll say this. I feel like unless the person is a huge hypocrite that is causing harm to the LGBTQI community and they are a hypocrite living a double life and they're in a position of power where they're like a Republican in Congress or somebody who's in the clergy that's that's spreading misinformation and hate. I don't necessarily, I don't believe that outing a person in, in, that is not in that type of hypocrisy is necessary. Like if Usher and Will Smith, who are not harming the community, they're, they're living their lives, why are we outing them? What are we trying to expose? What are we trying to reveal in a way that critiques an issue? What, what is the reason? What is the reason? That, that's the point, right? To me, that they're like, we don't need to know until they choose, right? But when you're dealing with 
Republicans, right? Conservatives and bigots that are causing harm in our community, trying to dehumanize those who are queer, right? Those who are transgender and trying to act as though that that we're some alien and that we're some type of, you know, obscene thing. But we find out that those individuals are just like us. I do think that we should call that hypocrisy out. We should name it because a lot of times it forces their groups, their hate groups, their communities to look inward and realize that this rhetoric of we're not human, that we're unnatural, that we're so sinful. Well, if it's good for the geese, it's good for the gander, right? And I've been in situations where the same people that called me a faggot were the same people that I had to let people know, oh, you're not going to bully me because it's really about confronting a bully, right? Will Smith is not a bully to the LGBTQI community. Usher's not a bully to the LGBTQI community. These men have never, to my understanding in recent memory, have been hurtful to us. So I don't understand the need to say anything about their personal lives and their own discretions if they're if these rumors are true. But to the people that bully us and call us out and call us names and tease, well then put the mirror up on their face and reveal their hypocrisy if necessary. And I think there's power in that. Because a lot of times, like what we saw when there was situations where we saw Republicans who were critical and we, we and we find out that these people were 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 out here, right? It meant something. It showed the public that this was more common. And in many ways it demanded people to stop acting like they had this magical gaydar of knowing. Just saying. Okay? Just saying. You know, yeah, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, so Diddy, right? Diddy. A lot has been said about Diddy in the press. I don't want to beat a dead horse. What I will say, though, is that, you know, Cassie Ventura, which is the artist we know as Cassie, you know, she reached a settlement in her lawsuit. She accused Diddy of a lot of things. Um, but she, you know, within, look, this happened within 24 hours. And my book, The Case for Council Culture, my goodness, how timely is this book, y'all? It's so timely, right? This is the stuff that we talk about, right? Um, it's a lot to be said. But but to be clear is the terms of the settlement was never disclosed. Um, there was lots of lies that was said. But before I get into what led to it, let's start from the beginning. She, on on this past Thursday, filed a complaint and she basically accused this man. This man, Sean Cones, is 54 years old. Cassie is 37. I just want y'all to hear that age difference. That's a 17 year age difference. They dated on and off from about 27, 2007 to 2018. This was 11 years, right? Okay, let's do our math, okay? So she's 37 years old. Okay, let's go back. That's three years, so that 24, 21 years old, she dated him. He was 38. What is a 38-year-old man doing with a 21-year-old or 20-year-old woman? Like, what, what, what are we doing here, right? They started working together in 2005, to which in 2005, that's when they met 
when she was 19 years old and she signed to his label and then they started dating two years later when she was around 21 years old. Diddy was 36 when she was 19. I'm just going to state these facts. We're having a lot of conversations about grooming. And I feel like we're, we're at this point where we're having these real conversations that we've ignored as a collective for a long time. But there seems to be a pattern here. And I'm just putting that out there. I'm just going to let you all sit with that dynamic. Because we all saw this and we just kind of act like it was normal. So, in, so, so on Thursday, she had told the press, after years in silence and darkness, I am finally ready to tell my story and to speak up on behalf of myself and for the benefit of other women who face violence and abuse in their relationships. With the expiration of New York Adult Survivors Act fast approaching, it became clear that this was an opportunity to speak up about the trauma I have experienced and that I will be recovering from for the rest of my life. She said, according to this, according to the allegations made in this civil suit, okay, civil suit, we'll get to why that matters in a minute. Basically, um, it accuses Diddy of raping her in her home after she tried to leave him, often punched, beat, kicked and stumped on her, resulting in bruises, burst lips, black eyes, and bleeding. She also said that in 2012, he blew up rapper Kid Cudi's car after finding out he was interested in dating Cassie. Um, in this statement, you know, Diddy's lawyers denied the allegations of on behalf of Combs and claimed that Cassie attempted to blackmail him for $30 million. See, let's be clear. See, people, the headlines are messed up. They said that Cassie was suing Diddy for $30 million. That was never true. The initial civil suit never named the damages or any of the amounts or any of that. She was suing him. They never knew it. The lawyer, Diddy's lawyer, was the one who kept implying that. He said in a statement that was sent to CBS News, Mr. Combs vehemently denies these offensive and outrageous allegations. For the past six months, Mr. Combs has been subjected to Miss Ventura's, this is Cassie's, Miss Ventura's persistent demand of $30 million under the threat of writing a damaging book about their relationship, which was unequivocally rejected as blatant blackmail. However, Cassie's lawyer said that Combs, it was Combs who offered her, quote, eight figures to silence her and prevent the fouling of this lawsuit. So somebody said at the time that it's advantageous for both sides to reach a quick settlement, which is what a, a CBS News legal contributor and Loyola, Loyola school, law school professor named Jessica Levinson said to them. She said, for Sean Combs, he doesn't want this to drag out. He doesn't want us to keep talking about the allegations against him. And she was right. Within 24 hours, okay, um, she reached an, uh, she reached a settlement. Just one day after bringing a federal lawsuit in New York against him, Cassie got the settlement. She said in a statement, I have decided to resolve this matter amicably on terms that I have some level of control. I want to thank my family, fans, and lawyers for their unwavering support. And then, you know, 
Diddy said on his end in a statement that we have decided to resolve this matter amicably. I wish Cassie and her family all the best love. However, there was another statement by his attorney that said, just so we're clear, a decision to settle a lawsuit, especially in 2023, is in no way an admission of wrongdoing. Mr. Combs' decision to settle the lawsuit does not in any way undermine his flat-out denial of the claims. He is happy they got to a mutual settlement and wishes Miss Ventura the best. Now, we do not know how much the settlement is. Terms of the settlement were not disclosed. But let's be clear. I believe Cassie. And to be honest... I feel like what people understand is that when things go in discovery, basically when you do a lawsuit and people start to go in discovery, meaning they start to subpoena people, get information, more tea will come out and more could have came out publicly that could have validated the claims. At the end of the day, we're spending so much time questioning whether or not Cassie's telling the truth. There's idiots like Jason Lee on the internet saying, well, if I didn't do it, I would have settled. Nah, 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 nah. Why did he settle? Why did Michael Jackson settle? Yeah, I went there. Look, we, we see Lizzo right now, right? Lizzo is fighting these lawsuits. Lizzo is not settled. Lizzo could easily just say, you know what? I ain't going to do this lawsuit. I'm just going to settle. But Lizzo's like, mm-mm, Y'all not about to sit up and just blatantly lie on me. I don't know, right? Lizzo is, is pushing back. Lizzo is challenging, right? Lizzo is not going to allow it. She just blatantly denies a lot of the stuff that's been said and she's fighting the situation. She's not settling as of right now. I'm not saying that that means Lizzo's innocent. I'm just saying that the fact that Lizzo is, is not just going to settle within 24 hours, I, I just feel like Cassie knows the receipts. And I also think that Diddy saw how fast things went from zero to 100 in the situation. You're talking about a whole situation. You're talking about, I mean, within 24 hours, we learn not just about Cassie, but we look at, you know, Danity Kane. We look at, you know, um, Audrey O'Day. We look at Don Richard, you know, because she, she doesn't like to be called Don Richard, y'all. She likes to be called Don Richard. Um, but you see these two women who supported Cassie out loud and how many times Audrey over the years had said things about Diddy. You see a lot of things resurface. The Diddy, not the Diddy, the young jock video he did an interview talking about how the reason behind why cassie had shaved her hair was because he forced her the fact that they said apparently he wanted her to have white nails like he did some other woman he was dating like there was all these types of, of accusations about women that said diddy was abusive and there was some homophobia from people saying that they think diddy's gay and that's the reason why he was abusive to cassie can y'all stop trying to demonize gay men why is it that it's so easy for y'all to try to insinuate some sexuality to justify their abuse. But what, what, is the, what is the justification for all these cis-head men that abuse women? I mean, <laughs> y'all don't, don't tie that to anything, but somehow Diddy's sexuality got something to do for why he allegedly abused K Cassie. Come the fuck on. Like, I just make it make the fuck sense. Just, just stop. Just stop trying to vilify people's sexuality. Stop trying to vilify gay people. Keep us the fuck out your mouths. Mind your dick. For real. Seriously. Mind your dick. Um, yeah, I, I'm not, you know, it, it's 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 a lot of things. I mean, the Usher, you know, we're reminded about how Diddy was a guardian over Usher when he was 14 years old. And Usher was living with him in a situation that led to Usher being exposed to, 
you know, not partaking per se, but being in an environment where there was sex, wild parties and drugs and things. And he's talked about this on previous years ago. And we never pay much attention to it because I believe because he was a man. And so no one took those matters seriously. But when we hear these stories about Paris Hilton and Britney Spears and all the issues they dealt with, there seems to be some interest in considering their their rocky childhoods or like the stories of what Drew Barrymore was exposed to. Right. But we don't consider Usher like Usher was a, was a was a young star. Clearly, he made a name for himself. Clearly, he he turned out pretty OK. Right. But still does not mean that this man when he was a young underage person should not have been exposed to some interesting things i mean even diddy you know people are talking about the couple of days that justin bieber at a very very young age hung out with diddy and like people are reevaluating what was that about right there's been a lot of things that have come out lately in the last 24 hours that quite frankly if this circus would have gone on for days on end we don't know how much more damaging things would have been said. I, I I just think it's interesting that Diddy has been very, you know, he talks about how he was in a dark place at one point when he thanked Cassie for being on his side a couple of years ago when he won an award. It's been very just bizarre. And Cassie moved on and married and, you know, she just really got away from him. And it just, it's a lot of things, man. It's a lot of things. I mean, we hear about, you know, how he did Lil' Kim, you know, Lil' Kim talked about how when she was incarcerated at one point in her life, he didn't send her any letters of support, how controlling he was with her when, you know, there was opportunity for her to potentially be on a song with Michael Jackson back in the day and how that never moved forward, that he's always been a railroad in other people's careers and his insecurities and some of his questionable, you know, alleged abusive ways. I mean, my goodness, what we've heard about this man has been a lot, has been a lot. So... You know, listen, I'm happy that, you know, there are journalists that it's been interesting seeing how the media has covered this. I'm very disappointed in the black press that has not stepped up, did not really say anything about this when it first happened. I mean, all these major black publications said nothing. Um, and I and I and I think it's interesting that the bloggers, a lot of these black bloggers, the Jason Lees, who will be ignorant enough to try to insert their own personal experiences. But to be clear, I need people to remember that these bloggers, right? Like there's people that don't like Megan, the reporter, the woman who, the white woman who've been covering the Megan, who covered the Meg Thee Stallion case with, with Tory Lanez. People don't understand any of why the court systems work. And there were people trying to, you know, infer, oh, it's white privilege that she got to cover it. It's not true. The, the black media, black owned media, a lot of these outlets do not actually support real reporting and journalism. They are so in bed with sponsors and advertisers and trying to kiss ass to all these publicists and PR folks and celebrities that you barely actually see any hardcore reporting coming out of those places. I mean, I miss the days of Torrey. I miss the days of Vibe. I miss the days of... Um, Dream Hampton and all those serious profile pieces that used to really interrogate and, and, and look into celebrities in ways that was serious journalism. Nowadays, I just see nothing but fluff pieces and front cover stories. And some of these, you know, entertainment reporters are never asking tough questions. They just are so hyped that they got some cover story with somebody. But when you read the articles and you read the stories, they're not saying anything substantial. And I thought my career not to be those people. 
There's people that walk around here and got all these interviews with these celebrities and they flex about it. But it's like, what are you talking about? Can we bring reporting back? Like, can we actually bring folks that are doing the digging? And it's and, and that's why as a black journalist, as a as a black journalist that covers politics and these issues, I have been very personally invested in the education of improving the pipeline so that there are more black journalists that are like me out here doing this work and not out here just bloggers ass kissing with gossip. Like, why is everybody that want to do journalism nowadays in our community so fixated in doing sports reporting or which is no shade to sports reporting, but it's just like we can do more things, right? We can carry multitudes. Why is it that we're, we're seeing a lot of people going to sports reporting or the entertainment Hollywood shit? Like, why are us? Why are we? and keeping people interested in covering local politics. Like, I don't like to be the only one in these rooms or one of the few or, or one of the only young people in local politics that's black. It's just, it's, it's, not, it's not flattering to me. I'm trying to build a cohort. I'm trying to build a pipeline through the work I do at the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists, the work that I'm starting to do in teaching and, and going to HBCUs, like this is my personal passion project outside of journalism alone is to really improve the future of it. Because quite frankly, there is some serious deficits and the deficits is not just only the fault of the man. It's not just white people. It's, it's our community having this weird relationship with journalism where we expect only one way of covering, that we can only do, quote-unquote, good stories, quote-unquote, positive stories. And I, and I say that with air parentheses because if, if there's a story where we're seeing Black women triumph over abuse in our community, that's a positive story to me. But there's too many people that like to talk about, oh, you're bringing this person down. You bring. Listen, stop it. In certain cases, these individuals are bringing themselves down. Nobody is bringing Darius Jackson down except Darius Jackson. Nobody brought R. Kelly down more than R. Kelly bringing himself down with the shit that he did. So I'm tired of people blaming the press. But what we got to also be holding people accountable of is the type of media they consume. Stop having the conversation about Joe Budden. Joe Budden is not a journalist. Stop having the conversation with me about Jason Lee. He's not a journalist. But you know what? I don't blame you for your confusion. Because when you have people like the White House giving out people like Jason Lee press pass invitations and leaving out le actual legitimate journalists who know the difference between filing a civil suit and pressing criminal charges, I can see why you're confused. Okay, because let's be clear, this man is out here talking about ain't no settlement in the world that would stop me from prosecuting a person who violated me. You idiot. The state prosecutes, the city prosecutes, the district attorney prosecutes the accused, not victims, not the accusers, you dumbass. But that's the problem, right? This is a man who makes millions of dollars to give opinions and act like his opinions are facts. And this man makes millions of dollars. Joe Budden gets to cherry pick what he wants to talk about. But, oh, he don't talk about Diddy. And you all feel like there's more energy to discuss that than to discuss actual journalists like me that's trying to find the facts. Enough with the culture critics. 
Enough with the gossip bloggers. Enough with the Tasha K's. Enough with all these people that's commentating on shit. It's time to start fucking reporting shit. Get out a keypad and get the fuck typing and do the fucking work. We need to go back to people actually substantiating the shit they say with fucking facts. When you listen to Ernestine speaking, I don't give you an opinion that does not come from the facts that I'm provided or that I do independently the source. That's how you have a conversation. All of this, that's just my opinion. That's just my opinion. You know, listen, you're going to get sued for your opinions out here. And that's what's happening. Because you're out here presenting opinions like it's the law of the land and it's causing harm to folks' reputations. And if you can't back that shit up, you're walking yourself into some shit. So I just think there's a lot of times people need to slow down and people need to be mindful about what they're consuming and stop acting like they're special. There's a lot of people that walk around here acting like they're special, like, oh, I can decipher between opinion and fact. No, you can't. And I tell this all the time. There's people on Twitter every day giving out solicited, un un unsolicited opinions and folks want to argue with them. We got to start engaging with the with the with people of power and with experts. I'm not going to sit up and argue with a random on Twitter that has some stupid hot take that don't mean shit. We got to stop. We got to slow down. You know, I'll give an example. Beyonce. I'm so sick of all these random Twitter people. And I got to tell you, some of my friends, they be irking me a little bit because they'll send me something from some random person that's putting out something about Beyonce. And I'd be like, every time y'all try to predict Beyonce's moves, Beyonce turns around and laughs and say, where did you get it from? There was a situation recently where um, somebody sent me something that I sent to somebody, but I was... The, the the New York Post actually published this story that claimed that Beyonce was going to perform in Vegas. Now, it was a media outlet. But the New York Post is a gossipy tabloidy site, but sometimes they're hit or miss, right? But there was people that was adding on to that story about, oh, how she's top secret. She got these dancers. It's going to be at this place. And Yvette, which is her... Um, which is... Who just had a birthday. She just turned 60-something, which I didn't even realize she was in her 60s. But Yvette... Um, who is Beyonce's publicist? Yvette No is basically said this is not true. This is categorically not true. There's no, there's no, um, there's no truth to this rumor. Um, I was like, wow, you know, Yvette No Shuri um, basically said there's no truth to this and just shut it down right there. And I was like, damn, just like that. Just like that. So we just, as a community, as a people, just have to just, we got to stop feeding the beast. We just got to stop running with every single thing we hear in the streets, period. So in movies that I've watched, I've watched, well, I watched three, but two that are out right now that you can watch on Netflix. It is Nyad, which is this biopic about Diana Nyad, who was this incredible um well, she's still alive, so let me let me get that that correct. But um, this film is about this 64-year-old marathon swimmer who attempts to become the first person ever to swim from Cuba to Florida. It's based on a true story. It actually happened. Annette Benning, who's a four-time Academy Award nominee, who I believe will be getting her fifth Best Actress nomination. Well, her best, her fifth, her, I'm sorry, she's been nominated for Best Supporting Actress in the past. This will be her fifth Academy Award nomination. I believe, for this performance. She was in The Grifters, uh, American Beauty, 
Um, uh, Being Julia, which is one of my favorite films. I love Being Julia, underrated. Um, she was in The Kids Are All Right. And I believe she'll get her fifth nomination for uh, Nyad. Um, also, another person in this film that killed it was Jodie Foster playing her friend Bonnie Stowe. This is based on a true story. It's an incredible film. Um, Annette Bennings playing a lesbian yet again. She loves playing a lesbian. A lesbian. Diane, I mean, Annette Bening is married to um, Warren Beatty. But for whatever reason, Annette Bening loves to play a lesbian, okay? And she plays a good one. She, Her last Best Actress nomination was in the film The Kids Are All Right alongside um, Julianne Moore. And look, I thought that performance was great. Um, but... And who was in it? It was also um, another guy who won a, got an Oscar nomination. Um, and he's so progressive. He got a nomination as well. Um, that that cast was incredible. Um, Mark Ruffalo. Yes, Mark Ruffalo. He was in it. And he got nominated. Because um, he was like the sperm donor in the film. And that came out 2010. It was many, it was over a decade ago. And so it's been about 14 years since she's gotten the Oscar nomination. So she is kind of long overdue. She's been in some other good films since then, but wow, 14 years since then. Look, she's another one that's under uh, next to Amy Adams. You gotta wonder why is Annette Benny not won an Oscar? Well, the well, two times she tried to get an Oscar, she lost to um Hillary Swank. One for that iconic film Boys Don't Cry, when she when Annette Benning was in American Beauty, which was a really great performance. Some people argue it was more of a supporting role, but I think it was leading in my opinion. And then the other film was Being Julia, which was a great performance. But Hilary Swank, once again, ate in Million Dollar Baby, which was a big smash hit film that year. Um, so, you know, it's interesting what happens with the roles. But I said all to say that Jodie Foster was Bonnie Stowe. I could see Jodie Foster getting a Best Supporting Actress nomination. She was also good in this film. And it was really good. I, I really enjoyed the film. I, I encourage you all to watch it. Um, it's on Netflix right now. But the other film that just took it away from me, that really like inspired me and just really just made me feel good all around, and that's Rustin, which is this biopic about Bayard Rustin, the Black, iconic, Black gay civil rights icon who is was long overdue for a biopic. I found out about him in college when so many of the books I was reading focused a lot on conversations about, you know, straight black men in the civil rights movement. Like, I was like, there was no one out in queer. We heard a little bit about Langston Hughes. Of course, we heard about James Baldwin, but what about others? And I read a book called Lost Prophet that changed my life. And this book was all about the legendary Bayard Rustin, who, interesting enough, went to Cheney University, that invisible string I talk about people, and basically was this outspoken civil rights leader who was out and proud at a time where that was not hip. This man went through a lot. They tried to erase him from the history books because he was gay. His involvement in the iconic March on Washington, the march that the Washington rally in D.C. that gave us the iconic I Have a Dream speech that was organized and co-led and co-organized by an openly black gay man in the 1960s. And this man hails from Pennsylvania in Westchester. Like there is a history here. 
And here I am, over 50 years later, 60 years later, teaching his course, uh, teaching, teaching about him in that school, being out and proud and being myself. And here we are. History. We spend so much time acting as though the gay, you know, like when I hear this rhetoric of, oh, they're pushing a gay agenda. We need to go back to the old days with our civil rights leaders when they were family oriented and straight and blah, 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 blah. Bullshit. We were there. We were there. We were here. We were here. We're here now. And we were there. We were here then. And history did not erase it. I got to thank the Obamas. Barack and Michelle Obama are the executive producers of this incredible film. Um, Coleman Domingo, who is actually a black queer um, actor who's out, right? He won an Emmy for his performance um, on Euphoria. And he is playing the role. And there's a lot of people who's in this film. Audrey McDonald. Um, Chris Rock is in the film. Um, interesting enough. Um... There's this other, other, uh, um, Jeffrey Wright is in the film. There's a lot of actors that we know. It's a very well done film. There's some interesting storylines. Um, the, the, everything about the film is pretty much accurate. There is some historical liberties taken in one aspect. So I don't want to tell too much of the film, but there's a love interest in the film with Bayard Rust, Bayard Rust throughout the entire, you know, film. There's this journey with him and some trade. If you know what trade means. But him and this guy have this little love affair going on. And it's it's very interesting. That is not a real relationship. However, what I will tell you is that throughout Bayard's memoirs and biographies, he speaks of these types of relationships that were basically heartbreaking. And lovers that he had that, you know, couldn't fully be their true selves at that time because of the world, the way the world was. But he hints at it. So there is a there is this this storyline that is in the midst of everything else being said, which is historically accurate. Right. So things that are accurate that there was the threat by members of the NAACP at the time that, well, that they didn't want Bayard Rustin front and center because of sexual orientation. And they there was a point in which um, Congressman Adam Clayton Powell, this black congressman have allegedly threatened to put out rumors in the press that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Bayard Rustin had a, in a, a sexual relationship, that they had a private gay relationship. Of, that's not true. There's been nothing historically to substantiate that. They were very close friends, but they were ne- that, that was never the nature of the relationship. There's been no proof of that, okay? But interesting enough, because of how much... People back then were intimidated by Bayard Rustin's genius. They weaponized his sexual orientation against them and they perpetuated oppressive and discriminatory. And this was happening not just in America by white folks, but actually within the black community as he tried to advocate for the civil rights of his own folks. So sometimes it is your own people. And what a and what a disappointment, right? But I say all just to say that here we are, you know, November 20th, okay, 2013. Historically interesting, Obama posthumously awarded him with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. He did that 
10 years ago, November 20th. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, if you're listening to this and you're one of the first listen, what is today's date? Exactly. How unique is it that 10 years ago, Bayard Rustin was given the Medal of Freedom. Now, he died in 1987 at the age of 75. He has a very complicated history, but his legacy lives on. You know, his legacy lives on. He fought for gay rights, you know, labor rights. You know, there was aspects of him around social justice. Some people consider him a socialist. I mean, he has a very interesting life. And I will tell you, there is, for fun people, well fun, there is an incredible podcast called the Bayard Rustin Podcast There for Netflix. Netflix has a supplementary podcast that they did um, of some episodes, a couple of episodes to talk about the documentary, the film. Not the, It's not a documentary, it's a biopic, but there's like about, I think, I believe like five or six episodes of this podcast. Um, it is hosted by Travell Anderson, which is, which they are a um, transgender, non-binary, black, queer journalist. And they brought me on the show um, to do an episode with another scholar to talk about Bayard's complex legacy. I don't know which episode I'm on, but if you're interested in this podcast, it's on Netflix. Um, I think it's called the Rustin Podcast. The first two episodes just came out, um, but it's called the official. Ru- it's called the official Rustin Podcast. Yes, the official Rustin Podcast, and it is. And it's called the official Rustin Podcast. Netflix. It is the official companion podcast to the original Netflix film, Rustin. So the way they describe it is each week, journalist and author, Travell Anderson, builds a world of context by bringing you insights, anecdotes, and behind-the-scenes perspectives through conversation with the artists who made the film. You also hear from scholars, journalists, and activists as they wrestle with the legacy of Bayard Rustin, one of the civil rights movement's most complicated and compelling figures. He challenged authority. He never apologized for who he was. And despite making history, he was nearly forgotten until now. They will include bonus audio from a newly created walking tour of the National Mall in Washington, D.C. that commemorating Rustin's role in organizing the historic 1963 March in Washington. So there's two episodes out now. Um, I'm not in those first two episodes, but you will see me probably in episode um, three, four, or five, but I'm coming. Um, the episode is really spicy. We get into it, but it's called, it's on it's on Apple Podcasts. It's called the Official Rustin Podcast. So if you want to watch the film first and then follow with this podcast, it's super fun. If you want to skip the episode, just listen to mine. I mean, I don't blame you because it's going to be good. But there's some really great conversations on that episode and also throughout the podcast. So shameless plug, check it out. Now with music, Andre 3000. Uh, oh, let me back up. Let me Let me take a little moment. Let me make this little plug real quick. If you have not heard, The Color Purple has been getting rave reviews. It comes out on Christmas, but I was one of the people who got to see it before it came, before it comes out. The Color Purple is on fire, y'all. I have to tell you, I warn you now, it is one of the best films of 2023. I see tons of Oscar nominations. I think that Fantasia Barino is going to get an Oscar nomination for Best Actress. The role of Celie is a signature role, but she kills it. Listen, don't bet on don't bet 
do not ever bet against Oprah when it comes to anything related to the color purple. From the Broadway musical, from the original film, anything with the color purple involved in it in Oprah is going to be a success. This re this remake of the this film, well, I want to say the film adaptation to this musical is legendary. It is so good, I will put it in the top five of the Mount Rushmore's of musical films. I'm talking Cabaret, Chicago, Dreamgirls good. Like, this is like one of the better Broadway to film adaptations I've seen ever, okay? There's been a drought lately. I feel like after La Miserable, when they tried to do the film adaptation, that which it was pretty, you know, good in its own right, we have seen a lot of films not have the right proper press. Like, seriously, there are people out here who have not fully embraced the musicals. They just don't do well. Like, Hairspray was aight. Cats was goddamn it horrible. In the Heights was colorist as fuck. I mean, there's just not been that many really great musical films, you know, that have been able to be successful. I think that The Color Purple is going to break that curse. I feel like The Color Purple musical is that musical. I mean, the acting is phenomenal. Coleman Domingo's in that as well. Um, who else is? I mean, everyone's in that film. Um, Holly Bailey is in it. Um, Taraji P. Henson, who I think has the potential of getting an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actress for playing Suge Avery. But the woman who I think will get an Oscar and is going to win that category for Best Supporting Actress, I think Danielle Brooks is going to win. I feel like in every... She's a screen stiller. I just don't see her not winning. I mean... There is speculation that there is another great actress um, slash comedian, um, Divine um, Joy Randolph, who's in this really great film um, that is also good called The Holdovers. I've been hearing good things about her. Now, she received a nomination, Tony nomination for Best Feature Actress in a Musical. She's 37 years old. And she was in Ghost the Musical and got a, a, a nomination for that years ago. Uh, a lot of people love Divine Joy Randolph. I mean, she was in Dolomite is was his name, is my name. Dolomite is my name. She was really good at that. You know, she's been up and coming. And a lot of people think that she has potential. Um, her role and performance in The Holdovers is pretty damn good. So if there's anybody that's going to give Danielle Brooks a fight... I would say it's another black actress named Divine Joy Randolph. We have the opportunity, y'all, of seeing three black women in the Blessed Supporting Actress category, which is is would be awesome. We've seen, I think we've seen that previously with um, Viola Davis and um, um, Naomi, um, who was in Moonlight. Um, but I don't know if it was three actresses then, who was in that film? Um, black actress that was nominated that year. I think Olivia Spencer was in it, but I, I think I think no, I don't think so. I think it was no, I think it was just two. So this might be something new. The actress in that film was Naomi Harris, who's a British actress. She's an incredible actress, but I haven't seen three three black women in Best Supporting Actress in the, in, the, in in the category. I don't think there's a potential that could happen this time around with these performances. But it's great. I mean, I definitely think. That the curse that was from the nineteen, you know, the nineteen eighty five film, right, which got eleven Academy Award nominations and won zero Oscars. Okay, there were two best supporting actresses. Whoopi Goldberg got nominated for best, you know, actress, lead actress. 
um, for her debut performance in a film. Like, I've never heard of that. Like, Whoopi Goldberg's debut performance got her a Best Lead Actress Oscar. She would later win another Oscar. She would actually win an Oscar for her performance in Ghost, but she won Best Supporting Actress. But her first ever film role, she was nominated for Best Actress in Lead Role, which never happened before for a Black, for a black Lead Actress. Now, we gotta say, Jennifer Hudson won Best Supporting Actress for Dreamgirls and what was her first ever, you know, film performance. Like, she never did a film before and she won straight out the grip, you know. So it just goes to show you that there are performances that can stand and beat records and beat time. But I do think that The Color Purple is going to walk away with something this time. I just feel like, you know, we looking back at nearly 40 years ago when Steven Spielberg directed that film and look where it is now and look at the history. I mean, the Tonys love The Color Purple. Both of the actresses that played Seeley, um, LaChance, who was original, Seeley on Broadway, and then also um, Cynthia Revo did the re did the revival, and she played Celie. And both of those two women walked away with the Tony for Best Lead Actress in a Musical. So it is history that shows that those performances from Celie to Suge Avery to Sophia, Miss Sophia, who I uh, want to be clear, Danielle Brooks plays M M Sophia in the film. These are just iconic roles that just are meaty and nuanced and complex enough that they always get recognition or nominations. So we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. But keep your eyes open for that film for sure. Um, but it's a music. Uh, there's been conversations about Andre 3000. You know, he's on the flute now. Look, that man 48, He, I believe him. He said, listen, don't, don't, listen, don't, um... You know, he's like, look, I'm trying to, I'm trying to do something different. Like, I, I, what do I have to rap about? What, what do I have to rap about? And I feel him on that. Like, what does he got to rap about at this point in his life? He's like, I'm not trying to be out here doing it just to do it. Which I can respect. Like, let this man grow. Let this man do what he do. I like his flute album. Okay. Um, you know, I don't know how the charts are going to feel about it, but, um, you know, I, I think that his his flu album ain't that bad. It ain't hurt nobody. He's living his best life. His new album is called New Blue Sun, which is a flute album. It's got some nice little sounds. It's cool to type with and listen to. I mean, have fun, you know? Have fun. <laughs> um, other things that have been catching me. Drake's rapping again. I mean, look, I don't the Drake Drake is just doing a lot. Drake's getting tattoos above his eyebrow. His I mean his yeah, his eyebrows. He is just, I don't know. I feel like he's lost. I mean, he's doing a joint tour with J. Cole after initially saying he was going to take a break after this. But I feel like he's so pressed. I feel like he put out this, this mixtape, which I guess his rap is stronger, but he's rapping about stuff that just seems to be out of touch. Like, I don't know who, like, like I don't know. Drake's, when there was a lyric I heard on social where he was talking about people worried about his mother's race and, you know, America, white America. I was like, child, nobody's checking for you. You've never been in a racial conversation. I don't know society. I don't know. Drake lives in a fantasy of his own, and I don't know what to do with him. So I just don't do with him at all. He's just so fucking weird. Um, but he's going on tour with J. Cole, and I'm just looking at J. Cole like, uh. But, you know, I guess get the money, right? They're not in any really major cities. It's really weird. 
But they are going on tour, and I thought, oh, boy, has stomach problems they have to address, but I guess that got resolved. I don't know if it's because of the plastic surgery he was doing. Like, there was speculation he did, like, fake abs or something to himself, and, you know, look, maybe that could have been the cause. I don't know. What do, what do I know? But, you know, October's very own, and he is not a Libra, y'all. He is a Scorpio. Not judging Scorpios. Just saying. Um, And then Loser of the Week, which is a thing that I'm just saying, Partisan Fontaine, you know, um, Meg Stallion's ex-boyfriend decided that he wanted to do a diss track about her. And quite frankly, I just don't know why he just... I guess. I don't know. Men in hip-hop have been trash. The 50th anniversary of hip-hop has been so distracting. I feel like we're in a situation where we might see the second major awakening of Me Too in hip-hop following the scandals around, you know, uh, what, what's his name? Uh, Russell... Simmons, you know, um, now we're hearing what we're hearing about Diddy. It, it's like, what's up, Dr. Dre, of course. We can't forget about his abuse of, you know, Misha Lee. You got three of these big hip-hop moguls that have been engulfed in controversy and scandal and abuse. And, and it's just like... <laughs> you know, and, and I just, you know, party, like, what... Why? Why do we care? I mean, there's talks about, you know, and then what's funny is that social media, man, the internet be on it, right? Looking at Slim Thug, who was critiquing and had something to say about about the whole Cassie settlement. And it's like now people are alleging and accusing that he left Latoya Luckin, who's from Des um, Destiny's Child, for his cousin and got his cousin impregnated, a cousin of his. I don't know if that's true, but people are pulling out the receipts. And it's like, see, this is why you got to shut up and mind your business. Because people are going to remind people how fucked up you are if you're out here trying to really go after innocent people. Like, no one asks for Slim. Why do we care what Slim Thug thinks about Cassie? Why? Why do we care? Like, I can't stay in the shade room. Like, why does the shade room feel the need to let us know what these randos think about these people? And give them all this platform. I mean, it's just... It's just trash, yo. I just can't. Um, but yeah, he did some diss track. The lyrics are corny. It, it follows suit into him perpetuating the same narratives and slut-shaming narratives about Meg. And quite frankly, dude, you cheated. You don't really deny the cheating allegations, you know. You just kind of just want to just pile on. It's just like, who cares? Next. Um, so, I watched The Crown, okay, Season 6, Part 1. Season 2 comes out December 14th at 3 a.m. on that. That's on a Thursday. So I'm going to be watching that. That's going to be six episodes. This Part 1 was only four episodes, which was really good because I didn't have to fall asleep. I watched all four. When you get past four episodes, that's when I feel like it's like either I need to take a break or I, need to, or I just doze off. Like, I can't keep up after four episodes. But these four episodes go by really fast. And it's really bleak. I mean... It really shows the complexities of the royal family. There's no happy ending here. Princess Diana's death was so sad. And when you find out what happened in the last days and last months of before her death, her untimely death, it is just even more just startling. Like, she just could not get a break. I mean, it's just it's so sad. Like, her life was in shambles towards the end of her life. Like, 
this the overarching press and paparazzi and attention and also just the royal family straight up bitterness you walk away really not liking the royal family like i just feel more and more annoyed with them and their pompousness and their snootiness and their their jealousy and their infighting it's just like who who the fuck are y'all like i don't i'm not crazy about them i i really feel like i'm just kind of like ugh, who cares and 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 just just i don't know yeah, I feel like in many ways this show is ending at a time where it should. I think I'm over all these royal dramas. I don't care anymore. I don't care. I don't care. I I I think The Crown will go down as one of the best TV series of the 20 of 21st century. Um and all the acting, the great performances and acting. This woman who plays Princess Diana this season, she's been consistently outstanding. Um, you know, a lot of people did not, um, the reviews have not been good about this. They say the crown reaches its dramatic final series. The show, once a joy, has failed to write the terrible flaws of last season. But this is from BBC, so I don't know how much the Brits feel about this. I've heard different mixed reviews about the performance. But Elizabeth Debicki, I think, is incredible, like, it feels like she's Princess Diana. Like, she's great. Um, and someone, you know, one of the critics said was, Debriki's performance remains so wrapped in Mimi Cry. She must have a permanent crick in her neck from bending her head to look up from under her eyelashes. Oh, it's... It's wild. It's, it's some brutal... Some brutal stuff. Um... Um, you know, you know, it's, you know, people say she's so, I mean, I thought she was good. Um, but you know, people just had people, there's a lot of, of, um, yeah, there's a lot of interesting things being said about this season. I personally like it. There's been a lot of interesting reviews. People say that they bungles Diana's death. There's issues with, you know, how it turns Princess Diana's death into a cheesy melodrama. Um, they talk about the creative choices to dramatize it. There's a lot that's being said about the show. Personally, I thought it was pretty good. I, I thought it was fine. I I liked it. I just don't know if we're in finally in Diane, Princess Diana fatigue, Oreo family fatigue at this point, given all the conversations, documentaries, musicals about Princess Diana's life. I mean, there was that that film, Spencer, that came out about, what, a year or so ago? Uh, about two years ago with um, uh, uh, Kristen Stewart, who was looking like she was going to win an Oscar at one point in time. And then we saw how that played out. Um, it's been interesting to see how the Oscars, you know, the, the all the all the princess, there's been a lot of Princess Diana in our face. Kind of reminds me that there was a period where there was a lot of Selena, right? But we always get obsessed over a fallen woman of, of, of prestige. And so I wonder if that's playing a role in some of the critique. But I personally enjoyed it, in my opinion. But speaking of untimely death, um, Rosalind Carter, the former first lady of the United States, has passed away at 96 years old. Um, you know, she is the wife of former President Jimmy Carter, um, who 
was an incredible American writer and an activist and did a lot of work um, on various causes. But mental health was one of her main, um, you know, issues that she took up. She's a big deal. You know, Jimmy Carter was the 39th president of the United States, but she was big on caregiving and women's rights and was iconic in her own right. Um, You know, she did a lot of work. She was a humanitarian. And even though Jimmy Carter only served one term as U.S. president, the work that she did was a big damn deal. Um, She lived a long life, 96 years old, Um, but she is still living. She still lives in the hearts of many people. And, you know, Jimmy Carter and her have been married since 1946. Jimmy Carter, a Libra, he's 99 years old. His wife is not, died at 96. Wow. He's one of the few living presidents, you know. Um, he's lived longer than Reagan. He's lived longer than George Herbert Walker Bush. And it's the, the only living presidents we have now is Jimmy Carter, who is now the oldest living president. We have Bill Clinton, we have George W. Bush, we have Barack Obama, we have Donald Trump, and we got Joe Biden. So, you know, we we got a couple left, right? Again, Jimmy Carter, 99 years old, Um, Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. We got six... Six living U.S. presidents. I I can only imagine when you're at that age, you're 99 and your partner is gone. That's that's heavy. They've been married. They were married since 1946. Um, So if I do the math right, that is 77 years. 77 years they were married? They were married for 77 years? That's a long time. That is a long time. Um, I couldn't even... Wow. Wait. Hold on. Oh, wow. Wait. Uh, yeah, seven is seven is it seven is seventy yeah, seventy years. Seventy seven years. Ooh. That's a long ass time. Seventy seven years. <sighs> um you know, my deepest condolences. Um it is it is it is not easy. But yes, um so Thanksgiving is coming up and I am getting geared up for Thanksgiving. I'm not cooking. We're not cooking in this house. We're, we're just not. We're going to have a cute little Friendsgiving. My brother's coming, Sharon, Jamarcus, Mr. Johnson. We're going to do a nice in-house Philadelphia Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, Miss Dawn's catering. Details from Miss Dawn is catering. I am not. I, listen, I, I'm not even going to pretend I'm having a cute little time. I'm going to cook. I'm not going to cook. I'm going to let someone else that can cook, cook. I can cook, but I just don't feel like sweating this Thanksgiving. I just want to, you know, let the pros do it. Heat the stuff up, do it right, get the catering together and do my thing. I'm I'm just, I just, I'm not beat for cooking. I have so many pies coming. So I got three pies from Cake Life uh, Bake Shop, which is uh, 
I'm getting a maple pie. I'm getting an apple strudel situation. I'm getting this vegan cranberry tart with graham cracker, um, you know, whatever. It's going to be good. And then I am getting a sweet potato pie from none other than Omar Tate of Honeysuckle Provisions. He's making me a sweet potato pie that I'm going to devour because, you know, I, if I'm going to get it, like, I got, like, listen, there's no, there were no sweet potato pie options at Cake Life. But I like to get a sweet potato pie made from, you know, a black baker because there's a type of soul in a sweet potato pie that I need and I know he's going to deliver. And so I just need a black person to make me a sweet potato pie. I just, it's a certain way I like it done. And, you know, but, it, I, you know, my greens got to be a certain mac and cheese, but I'm super excited. So Thanksgiving is set. I'm going to have a cute charcuterie board. I'm going to plot my finest wine. Um, when I finally drink this bottle that was given to me by my good Judy Kelly for my birthday, she got me a really, really nice bottle of red wine. And I am going to finally be able to put that baby in a good aerator and sip on that and have a good old time. So I'm excited personally. So I hope you all have a great Thanksgiving. This is a long ass episode. I know y'all are, y'all love when I do long episodes, but I was like, you know, it's going to be Thanksgiving, Black Friday, all that. So I figured that, you know, I'm going to give y'all a really good deluxe episode so y'all can get ready for the, you know, the holiday season. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Like I'm in mode. Okay. And I was like, y'all, what y'all doing? Y'all about to be off work. So y'all needed something to really, you know, savor in before we get into the interesting part of this holiday season when we find out who's going to be the next Philadelphia commissioner and what other tea might drop because I did not expect this week was going to be full of all these bombshells, but here we are. So as always, be well and be best. Earnestly Speaking is recorded in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. To stay up to date with the latest on the show, follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mr. Ernest Owens. Use the hashtag Ernestly Speaking to tell me what you thought about this episode and check out my website at ErnestOwens.com.